If you record audio for any purpose, yeah. chances are you want it to be heard. Speak it you to me. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. I'm attracted. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, uh -huh. a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Sweet. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, mm. we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. Tools. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. Oh, so, so very delay. lazy. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Sweet. Upload your audio files and get heard. I'm there. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. God, I love your voice. Ah, the Jeff. I hear those J-I-N-G-L-E bells. You do? How about well, you, old friend? <laughs> well, it must be demons. Wait a minute. <laughs> demons, that reminds me. Who's our guest? Oh, that would wait. be Nick Redfern. Yeah, you don't want to say demons and Nick Redfern, because that's, <laughs> that's not really the association I'm trying to make here. But you got to start over. Come on. <laughs> Seriously. Seriously, let's do it right. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I always start. You go. Really? Yeah, go ahead. What do you want me to say? <laughs> You're a professional, Jeff. Come on. Paratopia. It's not Jeremy Vaney. It's who, Jeremy? Jeff Ritzman. That's right. And you heard Jeremy already. I'm, I'm Jeremy Vaney. I'm professional. <laughs> welcome well, so, to the, wait, welcome so, to the show. <laughs> so you're telling me that you're protesting going first. Is that no, what you're saying? This no, is, it was going great. Why would you have to fuck it up? <laughs> this is your verbal protest. <laughs> Three, two, one. <laughs> Paratopia, it's me, Jeff, along with... Me, Jeremy. That's right. It's a good show this week, Jer. Prove it to me. Really? Do you really want to go there? <laughs> yes. It's Nick Redfern, for Christ's sake. Oh, my God. You're so right. That's right. Nick is with us to discuss his book, Final Events, which, um, I don't know, Jer, do we, do we feel a little late on, or do we feel like we just didn't want to ride that tide of popularity while he was doing all those shows? Yeah, I kind of wanted to wait till he had another few books under his belt before we <laughs> dive right into the brand new final events. Yeah, but a fascinating book it is, and Nick is always a great guest, and so here he is discussing what, Jeremy? Final events, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, wait, before we get to him, should we... Should we congratulate the uh, lucky winners of, of? Oh yeah, yeah. There's that. The book contest. Sorry, I'm a little tired tonight, but I'll be okay. You'll be just fine for the interview that we taped like a week ago. Yeah, I'm good then. <laughs> In the way right back now, machine. I'm I'm, to I'm too full of caffeine, nicotine, and Percocet. So. <laughs> wow, Percocet. What's going on? Uh, back problems. I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, yes. They should have a dream of a Native American man in a movie theater. Yeah, that'd make it all better. <laughs> okay. oh. Works for me every time. Um, so G-Wiz and Alligator have won, I believe. That's right. Yes, yes. yes. And they'll be receiving their books from you when, Jeff? Uh, I believe the term is ASAP. <laughs> oh, I see. Just in time for Christmas 2011? <laughs> Smart ass. Oh. No, I'll. Uh, I, I've actually got them right here, and I'll. I'll get those out. It's. It's been a busy Christmas season, Jerry. I got to tell you. you just Did I just Jerry? say Jerry? 
scary. Man, I'll tell you, I'm really tired. It's all right. Um, so you should tell the answer. Uh, so answer to the the first week's question, of course, was Zihas. Zihas, and yes. that's where G Wiz won a book. And right. You had a two parter this last week, which was. Uh, do you remember the question? <laughs> <laughs> The first one was, I believe off the top of my head here, uh, who was the Union general that General Lee met with or something like that? That would be Grant. Okay. And then the second one was, uh, who's the famous gal who was killed? Civilian. Who's a ghost? The only civilian killed in the battle, uh, which was uh, Ms. Jenny Wade. Dun, dun, dun. Of the Jenny Wade house. And for that, Alligator is now the new owner of a guide to Gettysburg. That's right. Signed by Mark Nesbitt. Visit the site at www.ghostsofgettysburg.com. Really? That's Alligator's website. I didn't know that. No, that's Mark Nesbitt's website. Oh, Mark Nesbitt's website. What are you getting punchy now, too? Don't make (laughs) me slap you, fucker. I'm trying to make you look good. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I'm trying to help in your time of caffeinated need. Oh, okay then. I've had enough of this. Hey, last week's show went well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Do we need to even talk about it? I don't think no, so. we've got plenty of show, so let's get to it. Here, without further ado, is Mr. Nick Redfern. Here comes the interview! Please welcome back to the show our very special guest, Mr. Nick Redfern. Nick, welcome back, and uh, thanks for coming on. Hey, guys. Well, thanks for having me on the show again. Uh, we were very excited when we first heard you talking about this um, clandestine group of people who seem to be investigating ufology, ufology or I guess just UFOs, not really the study of the field, uh, from a Christian fundamentalist perspective. Mm. Um, and your book, Final Events, has finally arrived. And of course, you've now moved on to another book, but we're not moving on to another book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because we really want to tackle this. Um, I, I guess, well, why don't you set it up? Why don't, why don't you tell us uh, how it is that you came to this information? Give us the basics, and then I'll ask you uh, a big crushing question about it. Okay, sure. Well, what happened was that about four years ago, I interviewed a man named Ray Beauchet. Now, Ray is a former, well, he's an Anglican priest, and he's a former MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, state director for the uh, state of Nebraska. And um, Ray, uh, I actually read this story a few years ago. It was published in one of Jenny Randall's books and also one of Linda Howe's books, how Ray had been approached by a number of people within a clandestine group within the Department of Defense that essentially uh, was looking at the UFO subjects um, in the, certainly in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, which in itself was interesting because, you know, the government has always said it got out of the UFO field in 1969 when Blue Book shut its doors, Project Blue Book. And, but what was interesting was that they weren't, as many people have claimed, you know, about secret groups looking at the whole UFO thing from an alien perspective, they were looking at it from a like a, a literal like Christian slash demonic perspective, that it was like a satanic deception, that the whole alien motif was a cover for more nefarious things. And Ray had this meeting in November 1991 with several members of the group, and they essentially told him that they, they got involved in this project because the plan was to contact 
what the group called non-human entities or NHEs. And the plan was to try and understand and exploit their mental powers. In other words, the creatures or the entities that we, in UFO law, if you like, are popularly known as the greys, were these non-human entities. And the conclusions of the group were that, well, you know, if they could abduct people and take them, etc., and wipe their memories clean, they must have extraordinary mental powers. Is it possible that we could then exploit them as a, as a weaponized um, military tool? And that's what the idea, the whole goal of the project was, to contact them and try and see if we could harness their powers, or if we had similar latent powers, learn how to, to use them. In other words, you know, psychic assassinations at a distance, that sort of thing. Um, but the people told Ray that the further they got into it, they came to believe that they were being deceived and these were entities were, you know, definitively evil from a like a literal demonic perspective and, the, and there was nothing extraterrestrial about them. And Ray agreed to being interviewed about this and I interviewed him at length. Uh, in fact, I think it's probably the lengthiest interview he's ever done on this whole subject. Um, and he told me how he was approached by the you know, people from this project inside the DOD. They had personal face-to-face -face meetings in Lincoln, Nebraska, at a particular hotel in late 1991, and follow-up conversations. They even approached and spoke with uh, Linda Howe as well. Not many people know that. Um, and several other people also. So, in other words, the threads of this story actually go back two decades at least. Um, and had it not been for Ray raise information and some of the information Ray gave me, putting me on the trail of other people, um, indirectly if you like, um, that allowed me to sort of find more people connected to this group and then, you know, um, delve into it further. So, so that's how it basically kicked off. It wasn't like, you know, a sort of a journalist dream where somebody just approaches you and the story drops in your lap. It was, had, had Ray not been approached 20 years ago by people from this group, there was no way I would have even, you know, known they existed or anything like that. Well, when you say that that uh, they were deceived about the what these beings are, who deceived them? Well, they believe these beings were deceiving them. They believe that these entities, but they didn't were... have any interaction with these beings, right? Well, they did, yes, to some extent. Um, it's it's not entirely clear to how and to what extent. There's no mention in the interviews that raided with these two guys that these entities physically manifested it was almost like like a presence you know they had like this feeling of a like an invisible presence which you know you could reasonably argue means there was nothing there in the first place you know who knows but that they, their view was it was like a a presence and there was like a dark cloud they felt hanging over the project where things started to go wrong there was bad lucks ill health deaths of people involved and they felt it was almost like it was cursed in simplistic terms. And the people on the project came to believe that these entities, the greys, were trying to lull the DOD into a false sense of security, into believing that they were benevolent aliens who were trying to help us with their, you know, their powers, etc. But in, in reality, they were trying to get their grips into us and deceive us further. But this is what I'm trying and to understand. How do they even have that if all they had was... A feeling of an invisible presence. How do you go from feeling of an invisible presence to mm -hmm. an interaction with gray entities that are promise making promises that they're not keeping? Well, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, personal interpretation. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, it's like although they're DOD guys, they're human beings and, you know, it's kind of like um 
just interpreting something and coming to a conclusion whether there's a rational reason for it behind it or not. You know, I think there's often a tendency to think, well, if these guys are in governments, they must have proof of this or that. They don't. You know, they're just like us. They have ideas and belief systems. And I think that's what it came down to, that they tried to contact these things. Whether they manifested or not is a bit of a murky area. But after they tried to contact them, and some of the people on the project said, yes, they could. You know, they, they did feel that their minds were being interacted with and that they were developing extraordinary mental powers far more greater than the people involved in the remote viewing projects. They felt this validated the fact that even though these entities didn't appear physically, that they were interacting with them. And then when everything started to go wrong, they felt it was like some sort of negative backlash. But there was no proof of that, to the best of my knowledge. It was just personal interpretation. You find it ironic that they basically wanted to weaponize whatever this other intelligence is and and if the intelligence didn't go along with that somehow they were evil uh no because i you know i'm i'm quite cynical about government and you know i it's natural that if you're going to try and contact something the whole point is to develop something that can can kill other people you know that's what the military does Uh, i don't find anything ironic i think it's i would be surprised if it was anything other than trying to weaponize it You know, if they said, oh, it's for the good of humanity and it was the Department of Defense of any country, I'd say, what? You know, a Department of Defense wants to help humanity. No, they don't. They want to kill people. Well, no, no, not that part. But I mean, just that, you know, uh, you want to weaponize this thing and then this thing says no thanks or turns on you or, you know, whatever it is they think is is evil about this group uh, Mm. is actually, I mean, could you not just interpret it as they don't want to be a weapon of the United States? (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you could. Yeah, I mean, I mean, why wouldn't they think that? That's what I don't get. I don't understand what the thought process. Well, because here I think I is. think you de- because we're dealing just with we may be dealing with people of colonels or generals or whatever, but at the end of the day, we're dealing with human beings as well who are trying to come to a conclusion. And you know, because some of these people were already of a Christian mindset, apparently in the group, that you know that they came to. That conclusion, I think, you know, I think this is the the important, it's not so much a subtle point, but I think it's an important point to remember is that when people say, well, how could they come to these sorts of conclusions without hard proof? How could they reach this conclusion or that conclusion? Because they may be D.O. Digger, but they're human beings struggling to find an answer. You know, I, you know, it's like I would legitimately ask, how can someone believe that Noah could get two of every animal on board a boat from all around the world? It's absurd. But millions of people believe it. Uh, you know, how, there are millions of people in, gov- the people in government who believe that Noah had the power to get. You know, how would how would Noah get two Indian, full-grown Indian Bengal tigers onto an ark and, and not get eaten in the process? That, yeah. That's illogical. But pe- millions of people believe that. So the idea that twenty people in a government think tank concluded these things are demonic, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to me really isn't that unusual when you have people believing even more absurd stuff. So. Did they, um, how many of them believed it before going into this research? Oh, that's a good question. A lot of them didn't, but some of them certainly were of already of a Christian mindset. Of a, or of a, I won't say enough of a Christian mindset, but of a fundamentalist mindset. Several of them, I know for a fact, were absolutely beforehand were obsessed with eschatology and, you know, sort of the final battle between good and evil and rapture, etc. And that's why they're actually brought into 
the group, it seems to be the, it's, it's a bit of a hazy area. And I'll, I'll admit, you know, we don't have all the data, but it seems there were people in the group initially who suspected that this wasn't extraterrestrial. And they, they literally kind of invited people into the group who shared that mindset. So there were people in the group beforehand who, I guess, whether subconsciously, unconsciously, or consciously, believed it was some sort of occult deception. And they may well have influenced the mindsets of some of the other people involved. So it's not impossible that it was, you know, a biased conclusion to begin with. So when they got a hold of Aleister Crowley's lamb material, did they just go crazy with it? uh, Yeah, I I think with the whole thing with Aleister Crowley and lamb, I don't think it was necessarily so much that, ah, here we have the answer finally uh, because we've been in the dark for so long. It was more on the lines of, ah, this just reinforces what we already believe. And that's an important distinction. You know, it's like um, going out and finding evidence that supports your scenario and ignoring data that doesn't. You know, and again, you, you can apply that to religions all around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to re- be applied to like the Collins elite and final events. You know, um, for example, Christianity and Buddhism will find problems in each other's religions that they will use to support their own. And that's no, you know, that's exactly what the Collins elite did. They ignored the ETH material or, you know, the secret military aircraft angle or whatever to bolster other data that supported their theory. And, you know, again, it all comes down to the fact that we're dealing with deeply held belief systems, not hard evidence of something. What sort of um, what sort of aid did they get from military branches, NASA, universities, that sort of thing? Do they do they get a lot of uh, they have a lot of sources? Well, I mean, in terms of the early years, the story, the the, prob- the first thing I should sort of um, reiterate or emphasize is the fact that. I mean, the number of people I interviewed allegedly linked with this group was 12. And of those, six allowed me to quote them, either on the record or off. The other six would, sorry, no, it was seven allowed me to quote them. Five would not be quoted on the record or off the record. Now, people say, well, how big was this group? If you interviewed 12, you know, I don't think it's something like the size of the CIA by any means or the NSA. I think we're probably talking about a think tank of 40 or 50 people at any given time. But if you only interview 10, 11 people who spanned, you know, several decades, you're not going to get a full and complete picture of, of what was going on. You're going to get a fragmentary view. So in other words, I think, you know, when you bring up the angle of what they were doing and who they were getting help from, I think in the early years, it's difficult to know, but it seems it was very much low-key. It was more along the lines of, well, Blue Book, Grudge, and Sign, the Air Force's early projects, you know, aren't really doing too well. They've, yeah, they've got radar reports and pilot reports, but they're not really answering the question. And the CIA's Robertson panel was looking more at the issue of the national security issues, how the Russians, for example, might exploit the whole phenomenon to launch a sneak attack. You know, you had the FBI looking at the contactees to see if they were trying to spread communism. So in other words, you had a bunch of different projects looking at the whole UFO issue from different angles. And that's what this group was doing in the early years. And to the best of my knowledge, but, you know, I'll be first to admit I could be wrong because, you know, depending on how many 
how clear a picture I've got, but it doesn't seem to be the case that things really sort of picked up until at least the mid-70s and then kind of escalated quite a lot in the Reagan years because they got support of a president who was obsessed with end-time scenarios and aliens. So just so that we're clear about what happened here, this isn't a group that actually found proof of anything that supports what they're saying. They just oh, no, no, no. came to a, oh, not at all. a theory about it. Yeah, based on the religious what background. They, what they conclu- yeah, I mean, what they would do. Why is that useful information? I, I mean, who cares? Like, why did they go on for this for that many decades? Uh, without, well, I think, what was the point? Well, I think the point was that they weren't like a huge agency like the CIA that required massive funding. You know, it was a it was a dip in the ocean to say, well, let's channel these guys. You know, two hundred grand a year to sit in a room or whatever and pour over old documentation, old, you know, 50, literally like 15th, 16th century books on demonology, you know, and see if they can come up with anything. You know, when you, when you see the sheer size of the budgets of the Defense Department today, and even, and even decades ago, you know, to channel a low six-figure sum to some think tank group doesn't matter. So what if they, you know, they continue in some sort of low-key situation for decades? You know, if they find something great, if they don't, well, who's going to miss hundred grand? We would, you know, but the Pentagon's not going to. Um, but, but no, you're quite right what you said. There's, there's no evidence, to the best of my knowledge. They never found evidence. What they did was to pick upon strands that they felt supported their scenario. Now, for example, you know, you could say, if you look at the Betty and Barney Hill abduction story, you know, Betty was supposedly shown this star map where the aliens came from. Now, somebody could use that to bolster their belief system that that means UFOs of extraterrestrial origins. What the Collins elite did, this think tank group, was they looked at, for example, they found that like George Hunt Williamson, one of the early contactees, um, made many of his initial contacts with the aliens, supposedly, by Ouija boards. They found that George Adamski's co-author... Um, uh, Desmond Leslie, his father, Sir Shane Leslie, was steeped in the teachings of Alistair Crowley. Alistair Crowley was linked with Jack Parsons, who was friends, who actually met Kenneth Arnold, and Parsons was deeply linked with the occult as well. So they concluded this must mean that UFOs are a cult because they were picking up on certain strands. You know, just the, the very fact that Hunt Williamson used Ouija boards and Desmond Leslie, George Adams' co-author, was steeped in the teachings of Aleister Crowley doesn't mean UFOs are demonic, but they used the strands of evidence to add weight to that theory. Hmm. Uh, Nick, I'm curious when we're talking about this group and how they selected members. I mean, you mentioned that possibly that the the Christian band was was a requirement, uh, possibly a requirement, but. Wouldn't there be a criteria for what you're going to bring to this group as opposed to your religious beliefs? I mean, did they have other criteria that certain people met, and what kind of criteria did they have, or were they looking for? Well, I mean, the, the picture I've actually I actually got is that you know they wanted people in the group who sh- who shared their mindset. You know, you could argue that's an arrogance. You know, that we don't want people who are going to be open-minded and question stuff. We want people who are going to bolster what we've already concluded. Mm. Um, and I think in, in later years, the reasoning behind that was because they had another agenda, and that was to, they, they felt arrogantly that, you know, this 
the government needs to be prepared for this and to do that we need to instill the whole idea of religion at a greater level within government and the military and that's now what we're now seeing you know right. the you only have to look at you, you type in air force academy you know plus christianity etc you'll find dozens of highly controversial stories about how the military is pretty much being bullied into almost be, you know being instilled with the idea that they're a Christian army, which they're not. They're the U.S. Army in the same way that the British Army is the British Army. You know, nobody should be fighting for religious purposes. You fight the Second World War or the First World War for religious purposes. And I think that's what the group was trying to do. They were coming to a conclusion and believing they had the right answer. And so then it's a case of, well, we've got to do something with this. We've got to, we've got to manipulate the government, if you like, almost to get them around to this mindset and so they tried it went from being an investigative project to becoming a project based around trying to alter mindsets and so we'll get who involved get whoever we can involve to you know to alter mindsets and do what needs to be done and so do you think in the end that's really that was really the focus to start with i mean was um, all no, of the I, other stuff kind of a ruse to get to the end that they wanted um, I, I pers- from what I've learned, I personally don't. I think what happened was that in the early years, at least for the first 10, 15 years, whatever, it was a case of thinking, well, there's something occult-based around this. Um, they, did, they came to believe, you know, it wasn't extraterrestrial, but it just seemed stranger. Um, you know, the Ouija board connection, the Alistair Crowley links, the Jack Parsons links, or everybody who was sort of involved in the occult was somehow tied in in the early years at least, with the UFO phenomenon. And I think that's how they looked at it. But it was only in later years, I think, that they came to view it as kind of like the final battle between good and evil. I mean, for the people I interviewed, I saw no evidence in the 40s, 50s and 60s that they were looking at this as kind of like the ultimate deception before the countdown to Armageddon. Uh-huh. But if you look at what they, the people I interviewed in the late 70s onwards said, that's when it seems some, somehow, I mean, I, again, I, I'll be the first to admit I don't have the full story, but at some point in the late 70s slash early 80s, something happened where they went from thinking this is a negative occult-based phenomenon to being a satanic deception that's going to lead to the countdown to rapture Armageddon and, you know, the final battle between good and evil is prophesied by the Book of Revelation. Something triggered a mindset change now whether it was information whether it was a change in membership who knows you know i i don't have a clear picture on that but something happened you know where they went from almost like a like a john keel type scenario thinking this is you know keel gave up on the eth the extraterrestrial angle long ago decades ago but you know he felt there was still some like a negative angle to all this and i, I think initially they were more like that but then, in, but then afterwards, it was just purely a pro, totally fundamentalist angle. Well, when you mention the '80s and a shift, then I got to ask, especially in conjunction with a Ouija board, uh, in any of your interviews with these people, did the Gulf Breeze Six enter into it at all? That's actually a very good question. Several people asked me that. No, it didn't. Um, but that is a, an interesting story. Now. You know, whether there could be a connection there. And there are, as I said, there's quite clear indications that, you know, I don't have the full story. And if I, if I had got a complete story, I'd have been highly suspicious, you know, if every aspect came tumbling out. Right. Um, 
But, you know, the, that was never mentioned to me. It doesn't mean, you know, there wasn't a tie-in somehow. I mean, I'll give you a sort of a little bit of a, not so much a scoop as such, but I mean, one of the things I wrote about in the book was I interviewed one of the members who was a guy I actually met in person when I went to his apartment. Um, it was actually, it was like literally filled to the brim with like models and painted on the wall of gins. You know, huh. a very Middle East, a Middle Eastern, you know, ancient entity, if you like, it was like a trickster shape-shifting entity okay. from Middle Eastern legend from thousands of years ago, which is where we get the word genie from, from the word jinn. Um, but what I've found since is that early, ne- it's sometime next year, Philippine Brogno has a new book out written with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, all about jinns, and apparently there's something in there about um, the U.S. military having an interest in jinns. Now, the fact that I interviewed this guy two years ago, attached to the U.S. military, absolutely obsessed with gins, it's kind of like this leads me to believe these are sort of subtle little connections where, you know, when you bring up the Gulf Breeze 6, there might be a tie-in. You know, I, I didn't get it, but and there might be a tie-in with this sort of gin angle that it was one that I didn't uncover at the time, but, you know, over time, it looks like more information might come out that sort of adds weight to the group's beliefs, if you like. Uh, right. Before we go on, can you explain, in case people don't know, what the uh, Gulf Breeze 6 is, what it is? Well, yeah, basically, it was the, a story of these guys in the military um, who were using Ouija boards uh, in the U.S. Army. And essentially, you know, again, sort of contacting higher entities that they interpreted as aliens and getting sort of prophecies and stories and, you know, the eschatology-type cases, end-of-the-world scenarios, alien visitations, and very weird story with things like the National Security Agency watching them and them going on the run and, you know, essentially going AWOL and then charges dropped against some of them and it all sort of, you know, pushed under the rug, so to speak. And, I mean, I've thought about this since the book came out and actually prior to it. And, you know, I do wonder if part of the reason for not bringing too much attention to it was because it may well have opened doors to other aspects of, you know, what the government may have known or been worried about with respect to all these scenarios. That's a big question. I'm curious because I've asked a lot of people this over the years. Um, that story, even when it broke, was only <laughs> was only half told. You really didn't ever get a true sense of... Um, of number one, why they went to Gulf Breeze. I mean, I I was told by a few researchers in the know at the time that they went to Gulf Breeze essentially looking for Ed Walters. Yeah. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know. The other thing that I heard at the time was that, well, I mean, number one, uh, I don't think I think one of them has many years ago re-injected themselves into ufology in some sort, but I don't remember how. No. Um, but most of them you don't hear anything about at all. Uh, they were interviewed by sightings years and years ago. I mean, decade or more than that ago. But Yeah, but I, th- I think the important thing I would stress about that again is that, you know, I, I actually do think there's far more to that story. But mm-hmm. equally, you know, some people would take the opposite approach as well, but you know, if people in the military are somehow interested in UFOs, I think in the UFO research community, there's often an in, uh, that means that they're in possession of secret information. Mm. You know, it may just be sometimes people join the military and they happen to have an interest in UFOs. 
You know, it's like, say, for example, Brigadier General, whoever, says, you know, I believe in UFOs. A good percentage of the UFO community will think, oh, that's because he's been secretly briefed. Right. It may just be he's a man who likes to read UFO books when he goes home from work. Right. Well, I mean, and... and, and the, the UFO community, I think, often doesn't appreciate that. And so I think we do need to tread carefully when we deal with things like the Gulf Breeze 6. Were they in possession of some secret information that sent them to Gulf Breeze? Or were they a bunch of people in the military who read the Gulf Breeze book and thought, wow, this is cool, let's look into it further, <laughs> and then got in too deep and ended up in trouble, etc. Right. Well, I mean, I know that the one thing that came up for them was that... Uh was number one, going to Gulf Breeze, and number two was that if certain events unfolded in the world according to what they, information they had gleaned from a, a Ouija board, that they were then going to go into hiding. And as far as I got heard at last, uh, the last time I'd ever heard anyone talk about that, uh, they had uh, yeah. gone into hiding. Did you get anything out of any of your contacts that said any of these people were tapped for the Collins Project? No, I, I didn't. I, I actually did bring it up once, but purely because of that, the Ouija board link. Because, you know, as I mentioned in the book, I talk about the, the fact that Alistair Crowley, who was one of the, the key influences on the Collins elite beliefs, he was a user of Ouija boards. People in the, the contact team movement were, etc. Um, so I actually did mention this. Nobody, or oh, the people I spoke to at least, knew nothing about this or, you know, professed to know nothing about it. Now, whether they did or not, you know, is a, is a completely different matter and, and issue. Um, and, you know, so in, in that respect, all I know about the Gulf Breeze thing is what's been published publicly, you know, in magazines and, and books, etc. Um, but again, it's like with the gin thing and this stuff coming out next year about the U.S. military and gins. I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere there's a far bigger story. You know, as I said, I'll be the first to admit, interviewing 12 people of whom only seven will let you speak, quote them, um, when we could be talking about a group or possibly actually I think several groups that could be in the, you know, 50, 60 range or maybe more if we talk about several groups you're not and um, you're not going to get a full picture of what's gone on over the decades you're going to get, you're going to hear what people want you to hear and you know and I'm not um as sort of wide-eyed slack-jawed you know gullivalous to think that there wasn't a reasoning or a modus operandi behind what I was told and what I wasn't told you know I I don't think it was a case of a bunch of whistleblowers wanting to clear their chest so to speak or their conscience I think it was in the, I think it was something similar to with Ray Boucher that somewhere there's an agenda behind getting this story out. Now, whether it's true or somebody wants to spread it like a meme um, as a deception, you know, it, it could go either way, I think. Right. Uh, I'm curious if they ever mentioned anything to you. I mean, I don't know how much of uh, of this show or, or you know the paracast that I've done or Jeremy's show that I've done where uh, I talked about uh, kind of at one point in my life with this thing reaching an end looking over case files and actually not being a religious guy <laughs> at all and saying this looks like demons and I felt ridiculous even saying it at the time you know so I kind of said uh, whatever that definition may mean uh, or however oh. that definition may truly exist, if it truly exists at all, 
that's what it feels like. And I'm curious if any of these things uh, came up in that, um, you know, some of the some of the questions you get from uh, or or you ask to experiencers. One of the things that I found in commonalities is, uh, have you ever dabbled in the occult at all? And uh, <laughs> the answer to that is yes. Uh, like mm. the vast majority of people I've spoken to over the years have said, oh, yeah. Mm. Uh, I mean, so clearly, uh, I, I think I actually read the book that that, that was a, a point that they made uh, when they connect the occult with UFOs, which on the face of it for most of the public, th- there doesn't seem to be a connection there. This is spacemen. This is what we are all kind of you know indoctrinated into with this. But the other thing that came up was uh, – Kind of a dissatisfaction with with commonly held religions of the day that comes up quite a bit, uh, along with I guess what some people would deem to be evil. Although I certainly don't, you know, that the the use of psychedelics and all that sort of thing. Was there any of those kinds of things brought up? In fact, I mean, you could go so far as to say, um, you know, like I did, which is looking at unidentified pictures uh of of objects that were that were shot over the years i saw a commonality but this would be because i was looking for them in that mm-hmm. you get a lot of commonalities of numbers namely 7 and 13 mm-hmm. seven windows uh 13 you know uh appendages that sort of thing did they base any of their mindset on actual data like they could pull and say this, this, and this all smell like demons to us. Well, yeah, I mean, aside from things like, as I said, the wager boards um, and the Crowley links and the Parsons links, you know, which they considered were all sort of inextricably tied together. They also, but again, this is this is again largely based around belief system. They interviewed a number of people who'd undergone so-called near-death experiences. Um, and who had sort of very strange experiences, not with what you would call like a traditional um, Christian approach of heaven and hell, but going to some sort of weird afterlife that was almost kind of like the Matrix movie where, you know, in the film Keanu Reeves wakes up into the, the real world, if you like, and he's stuck in this pod where all these machines are feeding on him and everybody like batteries. Um, that the the group interviewed a number of people who had near-death experiences who said that that's what hell was like. It was like a techno, like a cross between some techno realm, but one that was also linked with sort of archaic rite and ritual and, you know, ancient teachings, etc. but that they were feeding on human souls. They were like recycling and feeding on them, literally. And they incorporated this into their story, that, you know, the idea of... Um, that these were demons and, you know, that the afterlife was like a factory. You know, this is where we're nurtured, like the cows in the field, and the afterlife is like a never-ending, endless factory full of billions of souls that are fed upon. Um, and we're just recycled and used until there's nothing left. Uh, and so they want to keep us going on this planet. Now, in other words, but again, this was a belief system. You know, they could have... You know, I've read a lot of books on NDEs, near-death experiences, where people have a totally different approach, but they ignored that data in favor of the stuff that supported the idea that it was tied in with UFOs and, and a UFO deception. So. Huh. I mean, it, it, I don't know. It seems like a really one-sided study uh, and well, not... Uh, there's no doubt. It wasn't, it wasn't unbiased. There's absolutely no doubt about that. 
it was totally biased. Now, whether it was biased because they were consciously biased or they were arrogant enough to think our view is absolutely correct and everybody's wrong, so anything that fits in with our scenario we'll go with and everything else, well, of course, it's wrong because it's not us saying it, you know. Right. It could be. That's actually what I do believe. There's, you know, that that's the thing I stress is that when you have a group full of fundamentalists looking at the UFO angle, they're going to come up with a conclusion that supports the fundamentalist belief that some people have about UFOs and the occult, that it's, that it's all part of some, you know, demonic link. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I only mentioned this briefly in the book, but I could have expanded on it quite extensively because I've got a lot of information on it is that I mentioned in the book how um, one of the interviewees they spoke with, they asked if what the woman's views were after she'd had an abduction experience on life after death in the animal kingdom. Now, I only mentioned this about half a page in the book, but I actually had a deep interview with one of the former members who was involved in the 70s, and he said that, well, well the Bible teaches that the only entities that have souls are human beings. So if somebody said, you know, their pet dog died, and then two nights later they heard you know, the dog's claws tapping down the corridor or barking, which, you know, thousands of people have had that sort of experience. But they said that if people have had that, that's a demonic deception. And so they, they were asking abductees, have you had near-death, so, excuse me, have you had experiences with dead pets? And if any of them said yes, they felt that, ah, well, this is an abductee who's been deceived by a demon because pets don't come back. You see what I mean? Oh my God, that's like such a huge stretch for me. Like, I, yeah, I, I mean, it is. It's just, it should be. It should be a huge stretch. It should be a huge stretch for everyone because it's sort of reducing everything to such a simplistic oh, yeah. denominator, if you like. Um, and it's kind of scary that you know that people in government are being paid six figures. Probably, I mean, that's hypothetical, but I'm sure you know the amount of funding required to not just fund a project, but actually keep people employed in terms of, you know, them being able to pay their mortgage or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> well, we paid for it, didn't we? I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know? But I mean, again, is there much difference than that, than, you know, what we see going on today with the whole dumbing down of, and, you know, certain people in trying to get elected president who hold wacky ideas about religion who I won't yeah, mention, yeah. but everybody knows who I mean. So. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's really no difference, you know, it's just, but it is like it's a very simplistic approach, you know, but, I mean, it is interesting that, I mean, I could actually write a whole article on this about how this group approached abductees and said, have you had any pets die and did they come back? And, you know, they use that as a an angle that will, Pets, animals don't have souls, so if they've seen them, that's, that further reinforces that the fact these are demons because they're, dece- they're coming back in a deceptive guise as dead pets to try and lull these people over to the dark side even more. So. Right, exactly. I mean, well, that, that begs the question for me to ask that when you're talking about I mean, we've got this whole group of people with this already preconceived notion mindset of what this is or how this is uh, – Getting started, how did it start to begin with? I mean, there had to have been somebody in the seat saying, yeah. we need to get people of this mindset into this thing and let them go. Uh, yeah, well, did you get any sense of that? I mean, who those people were or where it's, where the genesis of this was? Oh, yeah, I know exactly. Well, according to them, I know exactly how it started. What happened was that 
basically, if we go back to Alistair Crowley, in 1918, um, Crowley, um, I'm sure people don't know who he was. You know, he was, people say he was like a, a black magician or a Satanist. He wasn't. He was someone who believed in a supernatural world, however you want to define the supernatural, and felt that, you know, it was possible using certain teachings and rituals to contact this other realm and, and engage higher entities, if you like. You know, he never placed it in sort of a literal, demonic or extraterrestrial perspective as such. But he, in 1918, engaged in this ritual called the Amalantra working, which was basically where he ingested mescaline and hashish to try and get into an altered state and said he um, contacted this entity known as Lamb. Now, I've, I've reproduced Crowley's own drawing of Lamb in final events, and it looks, you know, it looks like the second cousin of the creature on the front of Whitley Strieber's community. Sure, yeah. Large head and pe penetrating eyes, no hair, little shoulders, sort of, you know, it, it implies like a dwarfish little creature with a, with a large skull. Um, and Crowley, um, you know, highly influential person, one of the people he influenced was Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a brilliant rocket pioneer in the 30s and 40s, but like a lot of highly intelligent, brilliant people, you know, their minds are sometimes a little bit whacked out as well. You know, it's like this, the fine line between brilliance and madness, you know what I mean? And, um, and Parsons was, was typical of that. He, he was uh, drawn to Crowley's teachings and ideas, um, actually began running one of his groups out in Pasadena, California. And before his own rocket launches, he set up a company um, that basically did um, a lot of rocket research. And even today, the Aerojet company that Parsons um, created actually makes these solid rocket boosters for NASA's space shuttle program. And on every Halloween, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, they actually have um, what they call Nativity Day, where they bring out mannequins of Parsons and, and hold like a celebration to him even this every <laughs> Halloween in NASA um, right. so you know you have this angle of it as well but the the thing is what Parsons did he began following the teachings of Crowley and in the 1946-1947 uh, period he began his own um, investigations and rituals to try and summon up so-called elementals, sort of higher entities and demonic, excuse me, um, interdimensional or extra-dimensional entities. And some of this was actually done with L. Ron Hubbard, who you know, later founded the um, science, uh, Scientology organization. And what happened was that Parsons' background, as I said, was in rocketry. Well, Parsons was somebody who was a bit of a maverick, you know, and he, he was self-employed, had this company, he needed to go where the work was. And when the State of Israel was created in the late 40s, he thought, well, you know, this might be an, an opportunity to get some work. How about if I try and not just work for the U.S. military, how about if I try and sell some rocket ideas, you know, to, to the Israelis? And that's what he did. He actually stole a bunch of documents from work. And instead of, you know, like most people would do, like prepare a resume and send that to the Israeli embassy or whatever. He stole these documents and said, hey, this is what I'm working on. This is what I can do for you. And, of course, the U.S. military and the intelligence community found out, freaked out, and, and were quite legitimately worried that he was acting as a double agent or a spy for the Israeli government. He wasn't. He was just being reckless. But what happened was that the, the Army intelligence, Air Force intelligence, Naval intelligence, who... Parsons was all contracted to 
began watching him, as did the FBI and the CIA overseas. You know, they were watching what he was saying to the people in Israel. So you had like five agencies watching Parsons because of this espionage operation. And the story I got was that the more, because obviously background information had to be found on Parsons, the more they dug into the espionage angle and his personal life, the more they found out about his occult life and his links with Crowley, etc. And many of the people who were involved in this espionage operation, which went on for like a year altogether, about, about 10 months, something like that, they became fascinated by Parsons. And bear in mind, this was in exactly the same time period that the whole UFO subject kicked off with Kenneth Arnold sighting in 47. They found that Jack Parsons, um, there, was, there was like an interesting link between Parsons and Kenneth Arnold, who you know, arguably ushered in the flying saucer wave. What happened was that Parsons you know, was linked um, with L. Ron Hubbard, um, L. Ron Hubbard wrote science fiction, and he was well known to Ray Palmer, who was one of the early editors of um, some of the early formative science fiction magazines in the U.S. Ray Palmer actually co-wrote and published Kenneth Arnold's book, The Coming of the Flying Saucers. So you had like a four-step-away connection between Parsons and Arnold, and they actually met. And the people who were involved in the espionage operation thought, well, hang on a minute, you know, this guy's doing espionage work, we think, for the Israelis, which actually wasn't, but he's also linked in some capacity with the guy who's responsible for these flying saucer sightings that began, you know, a couple of months ago or whatever. And so they began looking at Parsons more, and there were people who, in some of these intelligence ops, were not just looking at Parsons, but they were actually part of the early UFO projects, and they began to look at the idea that Parsons was linked with it. And so they then began developing this idea that, wow, he must be involved somehow. And that's what I was told is how it all began. Had it not been for the espionage operation, they wouldn't have realized that Parsons was linked with Arnold and some of these other people. And they probably would never have realized the connection. But when they did, somebody said, well, you know, that's kind of interesting. Let's just, you know, give these guys a few thousand dollars or whatever, give them a room and see if they can find other connections because, you know, Blue Book and Grudge, are, yeah, they've got some interesting reports, but they haven't solved it. What's it going to hurt to fund somebody else as well who's got an alternative approach? And that's what I was told was, was how it all kicked off. So. I seem to remember reading this or seeing this somewhere because I have to be honest, I don't know a lot about Jack Parsons. That's a book I've been wanting to read for a long time. Uh, but wasn't there some semblance of blame laid forth uh, either by him saying – we did something that ushered this in to start with that, yeah. that he somehow blamed himself or took responsibility for the UFO thing as a whole. Yes, he did. The, the basic story in simple sort of abbreviated terms is that Parsons basically the scenario is that, you know, things like um, the Amalantra working and the Babylon working that Parsons and Hubbard engaged in is that you can open portals to other realms. Now, some people might call them other dimensions. Some people might call them wormholes to another star system. Some people might call it hell, you know. But the whole scenario is that we're opening portals to somewhere. And Parsons actually came to believe that through the Babylon working process that he was engaged in in 46, he actually felt that he opened a doorway, or probably not so much open, but widened a doorway, that allowed the UFO phenomenon to come through. Now, people say, well, demons don't need to be invited. They can just come through anyway. 
But Parsons wasn't actually saying that he kind of invited them or had he not engaged this process, they couldn't have come through. What he came to believe was that he sort of widened the doorway and the phenomenon came through in its modern-day incarnation of, of aliens. In other words, you know, 500 years ago, it was still visiting us and deceiving us, but it was in the form of goblins, fairies, or whatever. And 2,000 years ago, it was jinns and, and angels, and today it's, it's aliens. But he came to believe that the phenomenon sort of manifested in a, in a way, in a fashion that was acceptable and relevant to the people of the day, i.e. aliens coming from another space system, because that was sort of being mentioned in the popular culture of the time. So the phenomenon was reflecting the beliefs of the people as a means of deception, and Parsons came to believe that he was partly responsible for allowing that to happen. Hmm. Well, I mean, you've definitely got connections in here from uh, the occult, uh, I guess, sect of, of, of the population to uh, ufology, but did you find out anything at all about the reverse? In other words, people who were big in ufology having some connection to occult uh, people or practices, uh, you know, I mean, the, the first thing that springs to mind is that, uh, you hear this, this connection between Jacques Vallée and, uh, people like Anton LaVey. I mean, does stuff like that come up at all, even uh, in a tenuous connection? Well, I mean, in, in some respects it did, but not to a great extent. I mean, for example, you know, I mentioned earlier, like George Hunt Williamson, you know, Eugene Ouija boards to contact the long-haired space brothers out in the California desert. Mm-hmm. You know, this was someone who was in the UFO field, who was utilizing what the group perceived as being demonic means of communication, where in their view, the only response you would get would be a deceptive one. Um, the, I mean, you know, I mean, it is interesting that, you know, he used Ouija boards and all, and he was one of the early formative contactees. And that, as I said, Desmond Leslie, who co-wrote George Adamski's first book, which sold in six figure sums, uh, six figure amounts, sorry. Um, you know, he, um, his father was absolutely, you know, saturated in the teachings of Alistair Crowley. And he co-wrote one of the most popular UFO books of the day. Um, so, you know, you did have these strands that a lot of people didn't know about in the UFO field at all. You know, that the people whose books they were reading were, yeah, they were writing about UFOs, but they were also, you know, involved in everything from getting into altered states to, you know, deeply poring over the published works of, of Crowley and, and some of Parsons's teachings, etc. So, you know, you, you do find that, um, and, now, whether that means anything in literal terms or it's just coincidence, you know, I mean, it's like, for example, I'm interested in UFOs, but I'm also big into cryptozoology. That doesn't necessarily mean Bigfoot is an alien. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or does it? <laughs> well, or does it, exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, you know, joking aside, it's like because um, George Adamski's co-author was interested in UFOs and also in Alistair Crowley, does that mean there's a connection? Just because I'm interested in Roswell and I'm interested in the Loch Ness Monster doesn't mean the Loch Ness Monster was flying the craft that crashed the Roswell. Do you know? I mean, I'm, <laughs> right, joking. Yeah. I'm being, you know, I'm being a little bit sarcastic here, but you, you know what I mean. It, it's because someone's interested in weird stuff of varying natures doesn't mean they're connected, but the group actually did come to think, oh, well, that means they are connected. So. 
Right. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of I, I've I've seen some of the uh, the fundamentalist words about uh, about Jacques Vallée talking about while well, he was you know associated with this Anton Lavey and 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 all of that, but then you read and you find out that he just thought he was a nice guy. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you <laughs> that know, was it. Think, you know, yeah, I think there's often a tendency. You know, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but there is a tendency sometimes in ufology that people often take strands of things. And, you know, they put two and two together and make ten because they assume that there has to be a connection. You know, it's kind of like saying somebody who worked at Los Alamos says they saw a crashed UFO. Well, that means Los Alamos is connected with high sure. crashed UFO data. It may be, if the more you dig into it, that person was actually involved in another agency when he or she said they saw evidence, you know, relative to crashed UFOs. But it's like people make this leap and assumption very often in ufology that, you know, because somebody's in government or they're in this agency and they're talking about this or that or knowing this person or that person, that there has to be a deeper meaning to it. You know, it's sometimes it's like a, I know, a red car is just a red car. You know, it doesn't mean <laughs> there's anything else to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, for the record, you can disrespect ufology here all you want because we, we do that on routine. Oh, uh, no, it's not so much disrespect. <laughs> it's, it's pointing out the fact that people... That you follow, you know, people. Sometimes I get the view that people view ufologists as something different. Ufologists, at the end of the day, they're just people, and people oh, yeah. are flawed. People base their lives a lot around belief systems, and people make leaps in judgments. And and ufologists, at the end of the day, are not ufologists. They're human beings. Absolutely, and all human beings. You know, our mindset is that we very often follow the same lines of thinking even if the conclusions are different the way our thought processes work they're actually mm-hmm. very similar so let me uh, throw something in here uh getting back to these sort of tenuous connections that people in ufology make well mm-hmm. this group actually uh found that some of those connections aren't true right didn't they actually bear out that there are no secret handshake deals that they could find between military factions and alleged aliens oh yeah this, this is probably one of the strangest aspects of the story that you know i uncovered um one of the areas they were deeply involved in was was um alien abductions now you know the when alien abduction stories began you know it was just a case of oh well people get abducted and prodded and poked and treated like lab rats etc as the sort of 70s turned into the 80s and particularly the mid to late 80s you know you had a lot of these stories about underground bases black helicopters secret pacts between elements of the government and the aliens and, you know, like a trade-off. They give us some technology and it's like, well, yeah, you can kidnap our citizens and, you know, slice the heads and legs off our cattle or whatever, you know, and uh, bleed them dry, literally, or whatever. Um, But the Collins elite complained, to the best of my knowledge, to people in the Reagan administration, well, hang on, you know, we're the people who are looking at the abductions, we are the people who are doing this research. How is it that there's this other clandestine group that's got access to military helicopters, underground bases, and we're stuck in, you know, two or three rooms in the Pentagon or whatever, or, or some agency building? What gives? You know, why are they getting all this funding and we're not, and when we're the ones doing the research? And the more they dug into it, and they went knocking on doors all throughout Washington and the DOD, they concluded that there was no pact between the government and handshakes, as you mentioned. There was no sl- government-slash-alien project 
There were no underground bases. There weren't even any black helicopters. They came to conclude that no one who has claimed an alien abduction has ever literally been abducted. They came to conclude that these people weren't lying, but they can they they concluded that basically it was like um kind of like the the hollow deck as it's called on Star Trek, that where people were when they claimed, you know, in the middle of the night they were being abducted from the beds, they came to conclude these people never ever left their beds ever. That but the, what these demonic entities were doing was projecting imagery into their minds that would like a meme type imagery that would promote and I guess multiply this scenario that people were being taken from the beds, taken to alien spaceships, prodded and poked, have their DNA and egg sperm, etc., extracted because the aliens were dying and they needed to beef up their stock with literal new blood, so to speak. But the Collins elite came to believe this was all part of the deception, that you know this is what they wanted us to believe, and so that's why the abductions occurred, why the people were instilled with imagery of underground bases and black helicopters because it promoted and emphasized the angle that the government was involved with aliens. And so in other words, it was again a part of this deceptive ruse, if you like, to make people think that this was all going on. And, and the Collins elite concluded that they really were the only ones looking into abductions, that you know, all these other stories were just like a holographic, were all born out of like a holographic imagery projected to the heads of people who never even left their bedrooms. Did they ever question hypnosis? Um, that that I'm not entirely sure about, but I mean, you know, if you ask me my personal opinion, you know, I think we should question hypnosis. You know, I mean, somebody says, well, I'm training hyp- hypnosis. Well, big deal. That doesn't mean that the person who you're hypnotizing isn't pulling thoughts out of their subconscious. You know, the thing I always tell people, I think it's important to remember, is that there's not one abductee out there who has been hypnotized, who hasn't read abductee literature. Right. What what would they do with someone who, like a Travis Walton, who was just taken somewhere for days at a time? Well, you know, I mean, there are certainly, I'll be the first to admit, there are rogue cases. You know, you have people who report implants, marks on the body, you know, things like that, which they put down to stigmata, you know, because that fitted in with their scenario. There are... I mean, I'll be the first to admit that this is their belief system, but there are certain accounts and stories that that don't fit well into their scenario. You know, where somebody's seen a black heli- somebody an abductee who constantly gets black helicopters over their house, and they photograph them, you know, that doesn't necessarily tie in with this belief system that it's all hallucinatory, you know. I can, Im- I can actually accept the idea that it would could be possible to instill an idea in someone's mind if you know how to do it. But could you also do that on camera? I don't think you could. And there are abductees. I mean, there are abductees who've had... Uh, Greg Bishop told me a story how, for example, uh, Dr. Carla Turner, a noted abductee in the 1980s and 90s, she died of cancer in the mid-1990s. Greg was in touch with her quite a while. Greg told me personally and on the record about how all their correspondence, letter correspondence, bear in mind this was sort of mid-90s before the internet really kicked off, their letters arrived open and tampered with. You know, quite clearly somebody was monitoring their mail and Greg told me he got, he told me quite open, he got quite paranoid by all this. Um, but I never got any indication from the Collins elite that they had ability to sort of manipulate the post office, you know, and open mail. 
but somebody was doing it and it was connected with abductees. So some, something I think was going on behind, beyond them and abductees. Now, whether that means it was a, there was an alien angle or not, I don't know. But I don't think it all began and ended with the Collins elite as far as abduction research in the government's concerned. So if they were uh, essentially looking into this to try to find out how they could, you know, weaponize this mm. intelligence in some way, um, and then they came to believe that it was demonic, did they? why did they not then just stop their investigation? Well, I mean, to an extent. They, the story I got was certainly by the 2000s, they did. I mean, I, I mentioned this in the book towards the end, but as far as I'm aware, and maybe this has a bearing on why some of the people are willing to speak, that, that the... Collins elite and the and at least two other projects that followed a similar path are pretty much in a closed status now because they feel they've proved their point. And the important thing is not to gather more data, but how to fend off this demonic attack, if you like, that they believe is coming in the next couple of decades where, you know, the Antichrist will be shown and, you know, become the new ruler of the planet or whatever. And, you know, then it'll be, it literally be, as the end times begin, which side you're on depends on where you go up or down, you know, into the clouds or the, <laughs> the fiery pit or whatever. But it didn't take um, them decades to come to the conclusion. No, it didn't. But they, I, I don't know what the reasoning behind it is, but they do believe, well, they came to believe that 9-11 was the signal point that kicked off the, 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 the alarm clock, if you like, the ticking down to the, the final battle. They viewed that as the you know, the, the tipping point, if you like. But I, I'll be the first to be, I don't know why that should be the case, you know, why it should have been 9-11, maybe, you know, why wasn't it Pearl Harbor? You know, why wasn't it when the World Trade Center was attacked back in the 90s or, you know, the Oklahoma bombings? I don't I don't know, but they, they did come to believe that. So, you know, for many years they continued to investigate it and then reached the point of, well, there's no, much, there's no point doing it anymore. Now is... What do we do to save the, human, the souls of the human race? So um, I, I guess it's safe to say then that they started off with one thing in mind and then they just kept researching because they, you know, sort of developed another story. They, they wanted weaponry and when they saw oh. that it was demonic, then they wanted to get to the bottom of the demonic thing. And, and so just their, their goal think, changed. Yeah, I actually think what it was, because this was like a fairly small group that got regular funding every month or you know, a year or week, hypothetically, however it worked out. I, I truthfully don't know the answer to that. But I think what it was, you know, somebody in government said, oh, yeah, well, just keep funding them. And, hey, guys, you know, just keep looking into it. And, and it fascinated them and it interested them. And it was a paid gig, you know. And I right. think it was, a, it was along the lines of, well, yeah, let's just keep doing it. You know, someone's going to pay us to keep researching this we believe it and we think we're doing the right thing. So, you know, they'd go to the office every day and pour over, for example. I mean, as they openly told me, you know, a lot of their data came from reading things like UFO magazine and Fate and picking up strands. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> reading the Vaney Insight column? Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, they, they could be. You know, I mean, it, it, it was a case of not just looking at classified files and clandestinely watching abductees, you know, it was seeing what the UFO community was saying. And, you know, let's just say for hy hypothetically, Jeremy Vaney writes an article in which he interviewed a, you know, a former U.S. military guy about aliens, and this military guy happened to have a background whose brother was a Satanist. You know, I mean, that, that didn't, I know that didn't happen, I'm just saying hypothetically. But if they did read that, 
they would have probably weaved that into their story, but they would have pulled that from open literature. And I know for a fact that much of their data was pulled and culled from open source UFO material. So in other words, they, I think one of the reasons why they dug into this for so long, for decades, was because there was no pressure on them. It was, hey guys, we'll fund you, just keep looking into it if you find something interesting. What I actually think is that I don't believe the Collins elite, any more than Blue Book, Grudge or Sign, had the true answers to what's going on. But I think somebody in government is sitting on really extraordinary evidence, but they don't know what the origin of it is. And so they farm out funding to people like the Robertson panel in the CIA or Blue Book or the Collins elite and who have wildly different views and ideas and approaches and, and all of this information at some point is going into a, like a black box organization that is filtering it and trying to understand what the hell is going on. Um, and these other groups, like the Collins elite, are the ones who are providing data from their own perspective. And somebody on the inside who, who may well have like a crashed UFO and a bunch of bodies, but they haven't got a clue in the world as to where it comes from or what it is. They're saying, well, guys, you know, we've got this but we, we haven't got a clue what it is. Can you look at it from your perspective, and can you guys look at it from your angle? And they're like, yeah, sure, and we'll just do it until we get the answers. And if the answers aren't forthcoming over 50 years, well, they keep doing it for 50 years. I think what you've just discovered, Nick, is that there's a group of people in the government who get paid more to read UFO magazine than we get paid to write for it. Yeah, scandalous. <laughs> <laughs> and, re- and really, who, who's who's gonna who's gonna walk up from their desk one day and go, you know, we're just not finding the answers to this. I think we all just go home. <laughs> I don't think well, you're gonna you know, do that when you're getting a paycheck. Yeah, you know? and the thing is, it's like I mean, you, you forget the Collins elite or stuff like that. If you go through, for example, some of the stuff that's been released through the Freedom of Information Act, if you go to the FBI's website, the FBI posted in PDF format like 1,700 pages of their UFO files, you can find in there like photocopies of articles, you know, from some of Albert Bender's old Space Review magazines from the 50s are in the file. They've got copies of articles written by George Van Tassel, one of the early contactees. So in other words, what you have are agencies who are, we can prove, you know, not just looking at the skies or radar screens, but thinking... You know, but, I mean, you think about it, UFO researchers, sometimes we do get approached by military people and we publish the stories. And if the government wants to know who's talking out of turn, sometimes the best place is to look at the loudmouth UFO community that can't keep its lips shut. You know, it's like, well, oh, I've got this great story from General So-and-so. And so researcher John Smith publishes it. And then the military are like, oh, that idiot John Smith just shot himself in the foot because he published the story and he gave us so much information. We know leaked it to him. We're going to shut the guy down now, you know, and, and that's why they read the UFO magazine. Well, let me ask you then, the the people that didn't want to go on the record from the Collins elite, uh, do you have any indication from what they their testimony was or even just in them telling you why? Uh, do you know why? Yeah. Like what, what was so different from what I other people that were on the record were saying? Yes, I do know why. <laughs> and it wasn't that different. It was, it, I shouldn't laugh because it was literally like, I mean, it was disturbing to sit down with these people and see the stark fear on their faces and in, and in their voices that they believe 
the earth is a literal farm that where we live now is like the cattle in the field happily munching on the grass and that the afterlife is a soul factory they they it was a stark terror of not wanting to tell the general public that we are a farmed life form and that the farming occurs in the next life which is an afterlife which they believe some of the, several of the people actually believed all this but they weren't christians they they didn't actually believe the heaven and hell scenario they believed the afterlife was like an extra dimensional thing where or that could almost be explained like quantum physics the idea that some sort of life force or soul leaves the human body at death and almost like tunes into a wavelength like on a radio to some extra dimensional realm that certain entities that like predatory entities that feed on um i guess like a psychic energy feed on the human soul and they found a way to to feed on that and that the that's why they want the earth to continue as it is they want us to nurture us and grow us and feed on us and that's that was the predominant theme that ran through the people I interviewed that wouldn't speak out, not because it was a classified secret. It was the fear of how do we tell people? Should we tell people? Can we even tell people that, you know, they've had, they have 80 years happily munching the grass in the field before, you know, they're taken to the slaughterhouse and, and farmed of their life source. You so know, what does this that, tell that you? What does this tell you uh, about disclosure when you hear people saying, oh, we want disclosure, disclosure? Do you think that there is even a consensus in any f- military government sense that uh, um, that there's something to disclose, that they know what this is, that they could even disclose what it is? Oh, well, if you ask me if there's anything to disclose, yes, I do. I think there's a massive, there's probably a massive body of data demonstrating that UFOs are real and some sort of highly intelligence intelligence that is deceptive, I actually do believe it is deceptive. Is but you can't disclose that. Interacting with us. But I don't believe anyone has the answer, or can prove, I should say, I don't believe anyone can prove their belief system as to what it is. You know, some people might say it's deceptive aliens, some would say it's deceptive demons, some say it could be like Mac, Ter- Mac Tony's crypto-terrestrials, others might say it's deceptive time travellers from our future, coming back to try and harvest DNA because... The human race is dying out in the 45th century or something. Who knows? But what it comes down to, I think, is that there are people in governments who know there's a genuine phenomenon. They may even have, you know, even though I wrote Body Snatchers in the Desert, which put like a very down-to-earth government experiment angle on Roswell, even I don't dismiss the possibility that there could be people in deeply buried somewhere who have bodies and wreckage, etc. But having bodies and wreckage gives you no answers or ideas as to what the the origin of these entities are unless you have live ones and even if you do and even if you can talk to them how do you know they're not just bullshitting you you know well i mean i find so, the the term deception or deceptive to be to be deceptive uh because again oh, if yeah. if you've got you know i mean if you were to come to me and say hey i want to militarize you i want to take you know a piece of you and turn it into a weapon so i can bomb another country or whatever i mean I, I would be deceptive with you, too. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is, you know, it's almost like people say, like, this hall of mirrors, you know, deception upon deception angle. I think I think there is a tendency sometimes for people to think that if the government's hiding information on UFOs, it's because they've got all the answers. I actually think it's the exact opposite. I think there are people in government who have, de- have strong evidence of a UFO presence that 
is far more extraordinary than anything that surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. But that tells you nothing definitive about the origin of the phenomenon or its intent. And I think we probably, you know, it wouldn't be surprise me if there is a group in the government like the Collins elite that believes these things are definitively alien. You know, if somebody said tomorrow, I'm writing a book about a group I found in the government that actually agrees with McTony's crypto-terrestrial theory, that wouldn't surprise me because I think when you have, when we know there's a phenomenon but people don't have all the answers, then there is a tendency to try and format and create, whether consciously or not, a belief system. So, you know, I, I would be surprised. I'd be very surprised if there weren't other think tank groups that are being funded right now that have wildly different beliefs to the Collins elite. All it tells us is that there's something going on, but we haven't got a clue what it is. <laughs> did they ever look into remote viewing data? Well, they did, yeah. I mean, this is one of the, the key issues of the story that was given to Ray Boucher, was that if you, you know, you go back to the whole um, remote viewing years of the 70s onwards, you know, the whole thrust of it was to use things like powers of the mind, ESP, in simplistic terms, psychic powers, to spy on the Russians or whoever, you know, sort of psychically project your soul or essence or whatever you want to term it, you know, and, and spy on military files in some cabinet in the Kremlin or whatever, filing cabinet in the Kremlin. But what the Collins elite were trying to do was to sort of take remote viewing to another step and kind of almost try and exploit or use these the powers of the mind of these entities and see if we had latent powers similar where remote viewing could be taken to a, a further step where we could actually train intelligence personnel to psychically use their minds to assassinate people. I mean, literally kill them, you know, like psychically at a distance induce a heart attack or a stroke or whatever, uh, you know, a fatal one uh, in both, you know, heart attack or stroke. Um, and that was that was the theme of it. You know, if we can take someone out without having to sort of hire some or exploit some Lee Harvey Oswald or Saran Saran type or whatever, and it looks like the person died of natural causes, that's great. But remote viewing doesn't allow us to do that. But maybe these entities, if we can engage their skills, we could learn how to do that. Right. But, but did they but did they ever use remote viewing to view the entities themselves to prove out? you know, whether or not they were demonic or alien or whatever? Yeah, they actually did to some extent. And what they got was imagery that was very similar to this whole sort of soul factory angle. But the important thing is, you know, whether or not the what they were seeing was real or is their subconscious, you know, picking up on imagery that they'd already been told about, you know. But what I, what I can say is that Ray Boucher openly told me that when he met these guys from the Pentagon, they didn't just talk to him. They showed photographs of people who, were, who had been killed during these experiments, one of who had had like a heart attack, um, one who'd, whose head was partly crushed in. This is very weird. He said the photograph was someone who he looked like a hammer or, you know, some huge device had just pushed it, like a dent in a car. You know, if you literally dented your, the hood of the car, and it had like this weird dent in it. That's what this person's head looked like. But there was no physical um, evidence or there was nothing to show what had done that at the time. These people were sat in chairs trying to exploit the powers of these greys, if you like, and suddenly one died and then the next one sat next to him. Suddenly his head's crushed in. And Ray told me openly he was shown photographs of these people dead in what he describes like dentist chairs. 
I mean, Ray, you know, has gone on the record of stating, you know, he saw these photographs. Hmm. So, uh, did they, in the end, did they learn anything that, that we're not hearing from Pat Robertson or the 700 Club and that type of thing in terms of, you know, Armageddon, no. the final days and all that? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, that, that's what, what we're hearing is their interpretation on the UFO subject and what they believe the future will bring. Um, and, you know, that's, that's because some of them hold these views. I mean, they would have um, arrived there whether they did this study or not, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, these guys in the military, you could leave UFOs out of the equation. And if they spent all their time spying on Russian missile sites or something when they retired, they still might be of the mindset that, oh, well, I'm 80 now, I've got a couple more years, and then I'm going to go to heaven you know, because I've been a good boy or whatever. You know, I think that mindset would have pervaded throughout their lives for the most part anyway. Um, so in other words, you know, I think this is why people ask me, do I think it's disinformation? I, I don't. If it was disinformation, I think they would try to palm me off with some sort of proof from their perspective that this is what was really going on. But they were quite open about the fact that well, this is what we believe. And to me, offering a belief system doesn't sound like disinformation. It sounds like human beings struggling to comprehend something that is currently evading comprehension. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you one more, and then I'll, I'll throw it over to Jeff. Um, since writing the book, um, have they been following your work? Have they said anything about it? Have they given you any sort of update on anything? Oh, yeah, I've got, there's a few things. I mean, for example, one of the things I mentioned in the book was how um, one of the people I interviewed, a man named Richard Duke, uh, was a very elderly guy. And as I point out in the book, Richard Duke may not even be his real name. You know, I truthfully, don't, I've had some sort of very enigmatic meetings with him, but you know, I didn't go into half the details in the book of the nature of the meetings, um, even um, sort of very clandestine type meetings. It just sort of very, very weird. But the one of the things Duke told me was the very last thing he did during the course of his um, tenure with the Collins, which actually finished like 1960. That's how old he is. You know, this was like 50 years ago when his tenure finished. He's like 84 now or something. Um, But he said the last thing he did was to interview a woman named Ruth Montgomery. Ruth Montgomery was a journalist um, quite heavily involved in Washington politics, uh, political journalism in the late 50s and 60s. But she developed an interest in the paranormal, supernatural. Um, Actually wrote a number of books you know, on the on the entire subject, uh, one of these a book called Aliens Amongst Us. Excuse me, Aliens Among Us. Um, and Richard Duke said the last thing he did was to interview secretly Ruth Montgomery to get her views on the whole alien deception demonic angle. Now, Duke provided me with a a page of documentation that was essentially like a DoD document that talked about how. Ruth Montgomery published this story in 1960 where she said that she'd spoken to a number of people in the government who told her that the government was doing research into ESP and psychic powers. This was like remote viewing, but this was published in a a Washington newspaper in the 60s, uh, in 1960. And um, Richard Duke gave me this document that was supportive of the idea that, you know, she had um, approached or been approached by people in governments and had these off-the-record conversations with think tank-type groups. That's actually mentioned. Um, and I thought, well, you know, this is interesting. And Richard Duke said, well, what you need to do is file a request with the FBI to get Ruth Montgomery's FBI file. Now, you know, Ruth Montgomery was a woman who you know, wrote books about channeling 
and walk-ins. Walk-ins are basically where, you know, people, a person is possessed, you know, by like a discarnate soul. That's the theory. And the idea that there's an FBI file on it. Well, you know, I follow Richard Duke's um, lead, and since the book's been published, I've now got Ruth Montgomery's FBI file, which does confirm that in 1960, just as Richard Duke said, that she spoke with a number of people who she said were military people who would get together to talk about psychic powers and ESP and paranormal phenomena, which actually sounds quite like the Collins elite. And this is actually mentioned in this official FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, FBI file, which has surfaced since the book was published. And it talks about her meeting these people in the exact same time frame that, that Richard Duke said he approached her. Now, of course, anyone, a skeptic might say, well, you know, Richard Duke or anyone could have accessed the FBI files on Ruth Montgomery, but it's such an obscure story. How many people might know even that there even was an FBI file on someone like Ruth Montgomery? It's kind of like saying, you know, there's an FBI file on some obscure Ouija board user from, you know, 1947 or whatever. Um, so in that respect, stuff like that has surfaced. As I said also, when I wrote the book, the book was actually written for the most part, other than the sort of the latter parts, about 18 months ago. And, you know, I, I sent the book back then to Patrick Weish, Anomalous Books, who can confirm this, you know, that I mentioned at the time about how I interviewed this one guy who was obsessed with gins in the Collins elite, um, only to find now that next year, you know, this book's coming out that also links gins and a clandestine group in the U.S. government. So... Stuff like this leads me to believe it's not disinformation and that these new leads somehow all tie in. Um, but, what it, but none of it offers hard evidence. What it offers is, is bolstering their belief systems and the fact that they did exist and nothing more. Well, Nick, I mean, here's, here's where I got – well, there's two problems that I got that I want to – I'm going to go one by one through. Number one being here you have this group – that is government funded. They're in the Pentagon or wherever. Mm-hmm. And was it ever said to you, like, we were told what Roswell was. We were told what Gulf Breeze was. We were told what Hudson Valley was all about. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it, just, it doesn't seem conceivable to me that you could have a group studying this thing that doesn't have access to all available information about the subject they're studying. Well, you know, I mean, certainly later years they were told stuff about Russell, but then again, you know, you could argue that Project Blue Book, you know, Blue Book was an official Air Force project that was, you know, in its early years at least, you know, studying radar reports, pilot reports, sending people around the country. There's no evidence Blue Book was ever briefed on Roswell. There's Mm -hmm. no evidence the Robertson panel was briefed on Roswell. Um, and, you know, the only reason we know about the Robertson panel pretty much is because the documents have surfaced through the Freedom of Information Act. So, in other words, this wasn't a cover because there was, there was no Freedom of Information Act anticipated back in '53 when the Robertson panel was created. So, in other words, we, ha- we know there were government projects investigating UFOs that weren't briefed on all the secrets. Blue Book wasn't, but it was an official, quite extensive project in its early years at least. So, again, the idea that the Collins elite, a fairly extensive project, might not have been briefed. But certainly in later years, they were given a very strange story about Roswell that initially came to me again from Ray Boucher, but that was backed up again when I did the interviews with the, um, the people I interviewed. 
Now, Ray was given the same story as me, that Roswell did occur, and they said it was nothing to do with weather balloons, mogul balloons, or even Japanese balloons, like in my book, in my Body Snatchers book. What the Collins elite concluded, and what at least several groups in government concluded, was that the Roswell incident was a Trojan horse. They concluded that there was never any sort of crash at Roswell. They concluded that it was a deceptive event staged to look like a crash. And this is where it gets into really, I mean, really weird areas. Both me and Ray, from his sources, were told that the debris, the materials, the wreckage found on the Foster Ranch in Lincoln, New Mexico, was kind of like a demonic alchemy in the sense that they concluded that these entities, although they're demonic, it's not like the biblical angle. It's like these entities that literally have the ability, these demonic entities have the ability to manipulate matter and that they, the group concluded, this isn't my conclusion for people who are you know, listening right now, um, the group's conclusion was that these entities manipulated matter to create the so-called extraordinary memory metal found at Roswell and, and literally dropped it on the desert floor. And as for the bodies, they concluded that this was also like a, not a an alchemy as such, but almost like a almost like a DNA based alchemy where they manipulated matter and created, I guess, mannequins that looked like they once lived but never did. You know, they were just like jackalopes. If people know what jackalope is, it's like a it's like a you see them at carnivals, they're like a manufactured animal which is you know, it has like the ears of a rabbit and the face of a zebra or whatever. I want one of those so bad you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but uh, you know, they concluded that's what the bodies were, that they never lived, but they were like a, a form of alchemy created to look like living. So a shell, entities. I mean, a shell for a container. A shell, mm-hmm. never, but never like a container, never really lived. And they placed, they carefully placed them along the wreckage found at Roswell with a view to making the military think, wow, this is an alien spaceship from another world. And, and that's literally what they concluded, that it was like a demonic deception using ancient alchemy to create fake materials that looked real. Okay, so the, the, the second part of it for me is you mentioned both in the book and in this interview that, that these people are truly horrified by what conclusions they came to. Yeah. Now, putting aside that it's their preconceived notion of belief – Okay, let's and, and that's hard to do in this situation, but but just look at it from this angle. Do you find it strange that uh, that that level of fear and that level of conviction is brought forth by bad feelings and uh, maybe some documents or something that they're being told by the higher ups? I mean, don't you think it would take more than that to invoke that level of dread? Well, you know, I mean, I, I can, I mean, my view is, my personal view is I would agree with you, but I, you know, I don't know to what extent they were exposed to information that may have so convinced them, you know, that, 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 that that's that what provoked the dread, you know, the idea that they had, I mean, I, I could hypothesize if it's true that they had hard evidence of that, you know, I've seen no evidence to support that, but if they had, that might be the reasoning behind it. But I think, it was pretty much two things. You know, one was the fact that they came to this conclusion, and the other one was that they realized there was no way they could ever tell people, or should they even tell people? Was it easier? 
um, you know, just to, to avoid it. But, you know, one of the conclusions that some of the people came to, not all of them, was that, you know, the, the, the scenario of the Christian scenario of going to heaven or hell wasn't even valid. It was that these entities were controlling the entire show and that even if there was a heaven, that they were literally kind of preventing anyone ever going there. That Everybody went to this soul factory. Nobody, no matter how well you lived your life, you were going to go to this soul harvest in place. That was the thing that they, that was the other thing they felt they couldn't tell. It didn't matter what you, if you live like a saint, you know, it made no difference because these entities had some sort of, you know, way of sort of staving you off at the past, so to speak, and preventing traveling to the next realm, you know, if you've been a good person or whatever. It was, it was fruit, it was fruitless, it was futile, it didn't make any difference. But, but, they, but they never a, said a to you. Killer or, or a priest, you didn't make right. any difference. But they never said to you anything of the sort that, you know, we got this one definitive piece that this is it. I mean, no, no one they, ever said that no. to you. No, but it was purely conclusions based on belief system. The only thing that was evidence-based, and the ironic thing is this actually came in a leaked document. It didn't come through a freedom information document. There's actually a page of a document I reproduce in the book which is from a very lengthy report called the Collins Report, where it talks about how supposedly there was some sort of research group at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base some point in the 1990s that supposedly using what they said, what they called the, the Parsons technique, that's how it was described in the files, conjured up materials similar to those allegedly found at Roswell in 47, and they spontaneously, so, so the story went literally, and very, very briefly, spontaneously manifested in the lab for like seconds, and that people could touch them, and they were, it was like the memory metal, and then it vanished, and they had no idea where it came from, how they conjured it up, or where it went to, but they were kind of using like archaic ritual and rite, invoked, or used by Jack Parsons, and this stuff appeared, and vanished, and they're like, what the hell, you know, um, but the problem, now that could be considered evidence, but the problem is, it's like the MJ-12 documents. We have no provenance for it. Um, you know, people would support leaked documents. Wow, you know, leaked documents. I've seen people practically piss themselves over right. leaked documents. But to me, even I have to admit, and, he, and, he, and I'll admit, it, it doesn't help my case by saying this, but leaked documents are basically only worth mentioning. They are, they, and that's why I did it, to see if it would bring anybody else forward. They prove nothing. Right, um, right. And but I, I mentioned this document in the book because it is interesting that if it's true, somebody did have evidence and conjured something up, like you know, some, using this so-called Parsons technique. Now it, it's quite clear from the document that if it's real, it was meant for the eyes and ears of people who were already aware of it. So in other words, that's why I think the document's so difficult to understand because it's not meant as a full briefing for outsiders. It's meant for people on the inside who already have a deep awareness of what, you know, what they're talking about. So. Right. I mean, do you find it, do you find it weird that, uh, here you've got this group and this whole group is made up of Christian mindset people who, I mean, you know, let's, let's look at that from the baseline. God is everything. He's all powerful. He is the creator. And, uh, and he's the one we go to when we die. And then you've got this intrusion of uh, demonic aliens 
uh, or a masquerade uh, of sorts by demons to assume the role of spacemen. And yet, when we die, these things are circumventing their god. Because, like you just said, doesn't matter if you're a murderer or a priest, we're all going into the soul recycling unit. So, yeah. how do they rectify that with their own belief? Well, you see, this is one of the important things, is that they, from their perspective, I conclude, they actually started to sort of, whether deliberately or not, I don't think it was deliberate, almost like re- rewrite conventional Christianity. Now, you know, um, Michael Heiser did a review of the book and said, you know, he, he enjoyed the book and he thought, you know, the story of the group was fascinating, but he didn't, he realized that there were major problems with their story because it didn't go along with conventional Christianity. And I, I pointed out to Mike in the comments section, you know, there's been like a debate going on in the comments section at his, at his blog, but I, I don't think it was because they were ignorant of conventional Christianity. It was they actually felt they'd uncovered stuff that conventional Christianity hadn't, uh, that, it, that conventional Christianity had missed. And so they, the Collins elite, began to rewrite conventional Christianity to their own perspective. So, you know, their belief systems were actually, began to be molded by the idea that, wow, we found stuff that everybody else forever has missed. And, and, and wouldn't that hold true that if, if this was demonic, wouldn't it have rewritten their, uh, their long-held beliefs? Wouldn't that be the, the point? <laughs> I mean, when well, you step yeah. back and think about it, if they think that they're demonic and that they are uh, a product of turning people away from God and, and, uh, uh, and, and bringing about uh, you know, the final dog and pony show, then the demons certainly did their job, did they not? Well, yeah, I mean, you can look at that. I mean, it's like, for example, you look at religions that believe in reincarnation. You know, I, I can't deny, I mean, the, the, you cannot deny that whether you believe in reincarnation or not, you cannot deny that there are, you know, countless people who've claimed reincarnation. Now, Christianity says, you know, that's absurd. Christianity mm-hmm. doesn't even allow for people coming back as ghosts, you know. It's right. Like, so, in other words, but countless religions do. So, in other words, you know, the... We, we, we cannot take as, no, no pun intended, we cannot take as gospel um, mm. any sort of conclusion, I don't think, I think, I think, and if we do, we are being driven by belief, and that's what they were, but it wasn't just a belief in the Christian approach, it was a belief that the Bible's actually got it partly wrong, and, you know, there's an, another aspect to it that people don't realize that, you know, everybody's missed, we found it, and that's why we need to rewrite right. The books, yeah, and that's what I think is fascinating about it. It's like you know, as Christians, I would think that they would. Uh, I mean, I'm just trying to look at this through through somebody's eyes like that. That would say what these beings represent. I mean, in the classic sense of what they believe they represent, and then to say that. I mean, what do we know about or what 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 does humanity think when they think demons? They think you know, this is the kind of being that elevates your ego and and makes you think that you you know that you're you're the all-powerful one you're the you know you're you're the controller of your of your own and and uh and all of that and then to turn around and and be influenced enough to think that christianity's got it wrong and we're going to rewrite it just smells to me like well it is exactly manifesting in the way that they think it should you know so they came in with the preconceived notion and if this thing is in that symbiotic relationship with us where they appear exactly as we expect them to be, 
then they certainly fulfilled their duty <laughs> in that way, yeah, at least. Yeah, I mean, no, I'd agree with you. I mean, the thing, you know, I, I mean, I'm not, the, the ironic thing is, you know, as the author of the book, the people who are willing to speak to me were speaking to an author who doesn't really have, hold any, you know, strong belief, religious <laughs> belief. You know, I'm from Britain. Britain isn't a, people think it is. It's not. People's not a particularly religious country. The vast majority of people never go to church. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never gone to church other than for weddings and funerals. You know, that's all I've ever gone for. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, coming over, when I moved over here, I, be, I realized that America, you know, whole swathes of population are deeply Christian. But, they, but by being deeply Christian, they automatically rule out the idea that other religions have to be wrong. And that's actually right. much, much different from the Collins elite saying, Oh, well, Christianity's got it wrong. There's as- other aspects to it. You know, if you have a Christian population like America that by default is saying, well, Buddhism is wrong and, you know, or this is wrong or that's wrong because Christianity's right, it doesn't surprise me that the Collins elite would, you know, have their own cherished beliefs. Right, became their own the ideology. Population, but the entire population does as well. The entire right. population of you know, Christian America thinks every other religion in the world is wrong or mm-hmm. has aspects of it wrong. So why shouldn't the Collins elite, or being American, also share aspects of that approach, if you like? Can I yeah. piggyback a question in here with, uh, just off yeah. of what Jeff is saying, which is, uh, so if you've got these demons who are waiting for everybody when you die, why do they need to come here? Why does there need to be an antichrist? Why does there need to be a final event? Why don't they just wait for us with a fork and a knife and we'll, we'll just die and go there? <laughs> well, the story is that that's actually what they do now. But the Collins elite came to believe that the whole issue of the final battle is inevitable that the prophecy, you know, w- will occur, that there will be a final battle, there has to be a final battle, and that until that time, God has given these entities free reign to do whatever they want. And then when the final battle comes and rapture occurs, etc., that God will have a way of, you know, reclaiming the souls of all those who have been digested and those who were good will go up to heaven and those who were really bad, you know, will go to hell or purgatory or whatever. Um, but until that time, these entities have free reign to do what they want. But the day will come when the final battle occurs that, you know, they will be sort of banished to hell, that they want to take as many of us as they can. And they do that by lulling us over to the occult side, if you like, in this world and making us more vulnerable. And then they can take our souls to hell when the final battle occurs. Um, but the ones who are genuinely good, who have done nothing wrong, but whose souls were still taken, they can still be saved when the final battle comes. So, again, you know, it's like a very sim- simplistic approach, but that was that was their conclusion. So. Merry Christmas, everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Yeah, don't, don't have sleepless nights. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, joking aside, joking yeah. aside, the thing I always say to people, it's, you know, the whole idea of, like, soul factories in an afterlife is disturbing. You know, I find it disturbing, the idea that we could die and really wake up kind of like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix and like, holy shit, you know, this life now is not what we think it is. It's just the precursor to, you know, being taken, the cow 
the farmer feeds a cow and then he goes in the back of a truck one day and, oh, well, I'm going for a nice ride somewhere, you know, and the next thing he gets prodded and electrocuted and sliced up and next thing you know he's on somebody's plate in the local steakhouse or whatever. Um, it is a disturbing scenario, but the thing I stress to people is that whether there is an afterlife or not, the important thing is that there are countless religions around the world that have wildly, wildly different belief systems and they cannot, by default, all be correct. And this theory is simply that, a theory of a group in government that researched the phenomenon and concluded ABC. You know, in the same way that the Air Force looked at Roswell and said, oh, it's a mogul balloon. You know, it's, it's, it's theories based around, or it's belief system based around theories because the hard evidence is lacking. So, you know, I wouldn't want people to, to basically, you know, have sleepless nights worrying that this is a definitive scenario. It's, it's a conclusion of a small group of people within the government, not, you know, 99% of the population or whatever. Very good. Well, Nick, uh, that is way over our time. Thank you for staying up late with us. Yes, thank <laughs> oh, you very much. It's no big deal. I'm going to be up another two or three hours. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. You're, you're uh, behind us in time, too. Um, yeah. In any event, tell us what... Is next for you? I know you have a book out now, correct? Mm. Yeah, I've got a new book out. Right, it, hasn't, it isn't so much that I've been cranking them out by the midnight all. It's just that they're with different publishers and they both put them out close to each other. But the new book's called The NASA Conspiracies, published by New Page Books. And it's a study of NASA's involvement in conspiracies, of many of a UFO nature, like astronaut sightings of UFOs. Um, the face on Mars. There's a big interview with Mac Tonis um, in there about the face on Mars. Was um, he, did he work for NASA, Mac Tonis? I didn't realize that. No, no, he didn't. No, he, <laughs> oh. he, he wrote this book after the Martian conspiracy, uh, Martian apocalypse about the face on Mars. And I interviewed Mac a few years ago um, about all this. And there's, I actually got hold of a bunch of FBI files about how the FBI had investigated the space shuttle explosions, um, or predominantly the uh, Challenger explosion in 1986 because they thought it was people had contacted them saying it was due to sabotage. So there's there's stuff like that in there: space shuttle sabotage chapters, face on Mars, UFOs, did we go to the moon, all that sort of stuff. It's sort of like a anything that's sort of X Files conspiracy based as it relates to NASA. It's it's in there. So. Did we go to the moon? Yes. Well, personally, I think we did. Yeah, I think I think the the theory that we didn't. Is is just a theory, and I think the, there are good arguments as to why the different ideas that have put, been put forward that we didn't can actually be explained in in down to earth terms. Uh, do you explain them? How do I explain them? No, I mean, do, do you explain them in the book? Oh yeah, things like you know why in certain photographs there are no stars in the sky, or why um, the flag seems to wave in a vacuum. You know, I, th- I think there are genuine reasons why they can be explained from, from a valid perspective. But I also point out that I think one of the reasons why such stories and scenarios proliferate is because governments lie. And there's now, you know, an overwhelming and quite justifiable reasoning why people don't believe anything they hear. So, you know, why should they believe we went to the moon when the government lies about this and that? You know, that's it's understandable that people will be skeptical skeptical of anything that comes out of the mouth of governments. So. Mm-hmm. But, but although a lot of the conspiracies in the book I think are real, this, the, the moon landings one I think 
it isn't. I think yeah, I, I do think we went to the moon. Well, this ought to be interesting. You know, we're we're pals with Wes Owsley. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he uh, is working for NASA now. He's in Russia working for NASA. I wonder if we got him a copy of the book. Maybe we could get maybe we could get a debate or something. <laughs> I don't think he can talk to us anymore. Oh, that's true. I guess now that he's working for NASA again, he's not allowed to to talk. Does he think we things. didn't go to the moon or something? No, he, he oh, knows okay. we went to the moon. I'm, I'm oh, okay. well, just whatever well, the other things that. are. Because he's somebody who yeah. had looked into, you know, uh, I don't know particularly the face on Mars, but whether or not there was a NASA secret space program or, you know, covering up uh, Mars photos and things like that. I don't know mm-hmm. specifically the face, but other photos, and he didn't find anything. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I go into that in the book. I've got like a chapter on Gary McKinnon looking into the whole issue of, you know, these photos that he claimed to have seen and whatever. You can look at it from different ways. Like, for example, you know, when the Air Force looked at Roswell, I mean, the Air Force said, we looked and we found nothing. I mean, people think the government claimed to have found mogul balloon files. It didn't. It said the government openly admitted in their report, we found nothing, but we think it probably was a mogul balloon. So, you know, you could argue that because somebody, whoever, didn't find anything NASA doesn't mean it didn't exist. It means they looked and they didn't find anything. Right. You know. You know, I know there's earthworms in our backyard. If I go looking right now, I might not find them, but I know they're there. Yeah. <laughs> well, they are there, I should say. <laughs> True enough. All right. Well, Nick, uh, thank you once again for Alrighty. finally doing the final events show. Thank you very much. And if you'd like to learn more about Nick Redfern, final events, any of his books, any of his speaking engagements, anything at all, for all things Nick Redfern please visit www.nickredfern.com. All one word, www.nickredfern.com. So the Jeff. So the Jer. Wow. Wow. What'd you think of that uh, Nick Redfern story? Final events, the final events of our days before the big Armageddon with the Jesus and the aliens and the machines. Yeah, that was good, eh? That was very interesting. It was, actually. What do you think, more importantly? <laughs> the end. <laughs> what did I think? Um, I don't know why these people decided to come forward and start talking about this. I don't know. I mean, can you be that out of touch that you think, like, I've got to warn society about this um, thing that I've made up in my head? I guess you could. Hmm. Maybe that's what's going on here. I, I don't know. It smells fishy, see? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I wonder, you know, if they are for reals and they are following the reaction um, to his interviews or to his book, uh, I wonder what this clandestine group thinks. And if they, you know, for instance, if they're listening to this, are they going to take any of what we have to say to heart? Ah. I'm going to guess no. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) are they immune to criticism? Like, when you become a clandestine group, that's holds itself up and and all of that, uh, and then you release information to the outside world. How prone are you to actually listening to, you know, an outside opinion? I don't know. And that's why I asked, um, that's why I asked Nick about, you know, how much of these cover-up stuff were these people actually exposed to? I mean, you would think that if if some kind of internal affairs office were opened up to deal with this stuff and to look at it. I mean, number one, you would think that uh, fundamentalist Christian wouldn't be a prerequisite for being in the group. 
But you would also think that they would have everything laid on the table in front of them. Like, here's what we got. We don't know what it is, but here's everything we know. I, that something about that just smells bad, real bad. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> bad. See, nah, nah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when did this become a a Bugsy film? I don't know. Um, uh, some something's a little weird there. Uh, although I, you know, I'm, I fully understand compartmentalized information and all of that. The Roswell explanation was interesting. Well, isn't that the thing? I mean, there are certain things in there that are shades of how you and I have thought about this, and specifically, probably more so you than I, mm. uh, in terms of you know whatever trace these things leave behind probably disappears probably can't stay material in this dimension for very long. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I remember Lee and I talking about Roswell uh, back in the day, and and we kind of said at the time, looking at everything, was that, well, why does it have to be that this was a crash? I mean, what sense does a crash actually make with more or less the the, the weird and out-of-place stance that we took on this whole thing, which is, pretty much where we're at still now uh, with this show. I mean, we kind of said, could Roswell have been a planned dump uh, or, you know, I think we looked at it more from the standpoint though, if, if these things wanted to make some kind of contact, what would be the easiest form for anyone to swallow? Well, dead ones would be pretty easy, non-threatening, that sort of thing. I don't know if we exactly viewed it as a Trojan horse or anything like that, but I mean, that's certainly an interesting way to look at it. But to me, like I said, to me, everything kind of wrapped up with this thing of them being what they are spiritually in the sense of their religion. And then when they walk away from it, they're essentially rewriting their, their God's word and reinterpreting their Bible, which is something you wouldn't expect a person like that to do. And I thought to myself, well, if they're supposed to be demons, they certainly did their job in getting them to question and um, and, and marginalize their God. I mean, you know, if 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 you look at God as this all powerful being, is he actually going to let demons run amok and eat us? <laughs> I, I, you know. I don't know. That just didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I'm like, this, you know, if it's going to be a deception to them, then that's the way it's going to affect them. Well, did anything uh-huh. that you uh, read or heard make you rethink your position that, yeah, maybe this is demons in some way? Uh, well, yeah, a lot of it. Um, because, but, but I don't know. It's a lot like when I asked Jacques Vallée about the number three in sightings, like three seems to come up a lot. And he's like, well, when you're looking for it. I almost kind of put that to the same thing. I mean, I looked at, I guess way back, I just looked at how it affected people, not so much what it was. And then I saw a lot of things that George Hansen talks about, which is anti-structural behavior and how it's not good for relationships and how it uh, throws one out of routine and can disrupt your life and destroy your life. Um. And back in the day, looking at that, I go, well, you know, that must not be good. Therefore, this must be toxic to interact with in any way. And then looking at my own life, yeah, I could say that fit pretty well. But when you, I mean, again, you, I stumbled upon that 
by accident, and I certainly wasn't a religious guy by any stretch, but uh, I wondered if if, if I was going to read this book and, and get kind of re-engulfed in that mindset again. And because it, it's easy to do, because again, what you expect, I think, is the way this thing presents. And I think these people went into this into this study looking at it from the sense that it is absolutely demonic and and that's what they got. I mean, that's we've heard this before with Dorothy Izot's case to to my own for that matter. I mean, it's uh it seems to present exactly what you want as if that's some kind of communication on its own. I think the connection with the Ouija board makes me kind of cock my head just because of the whole Gulf Breeze 6 thing. That's a very tangled mess. I've never really seen like a hardcore report that someone has done on the Gulf Breeze 6 to find out exactly the whole story. But again, that, that it's that weird connection between the occult stuff and the UFO stuff, of which the majority of the UFO public that's interested in it um, kind of never draws that that line to. Like that That's not a connection that they make that easily. Well, I got to say there are certain things that if you look at it from one angle, it looks like a connection of some sort. If you look at it from another, mm-hmm. it's different. One of those is, you know, experiencers having had something occultish in their background. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know of too many people who didn't go through a phase when they were kids where they loved psychic stuff, UFOs, dinosaurs, you know, whatever, anything that was sort of strange right. and unusual. Um, and it, you know, to me, it could fall into that category or it could fall into something else. I don't know. But that seems like a, a 50-50 shot as uh, anything else. And in terms of uh, something demonic, what else could that be if, if it destroys your life like that? Well, how about anytime anyone takes that hero's journey or starts dealing with the unknown, even from a good level? I mean, what you know, Jesus didn't exactly have it good, did he? <laughs> I don't think so. You know, and yeah. he wasn't exactly, you know, he he was dealing with people. I mean, that was right. just that was just he just proclaimed himself something and and suffered uh, assuming any of that is true. Uh so, you know, it, it's not just this UFO thing. It's not just demons. I don't know. There's just something about whenever you step outside yourself or your structure, things become anti-structural. And yeah. It's almost like you don't know that you're asking for it. It's it's like maybe that sardonic grin that we get from these beings and that attitude is, hey, you're the one who stepped outside of structure. What did you expect? Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Of course it's going to be this dummy. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to wrestle with that. We've got to figure out, well, can we have our cake and eat it too? Can we maintain some semblance of structure or – uh, you know, whatever that is, or do we need to get rid of that? Is that what the whole sort of uh, Eastern sense of non-attachment is about? Um, mm. Is sort of curbing fear by not having an attachment to things and, you know, basically not caring about things that aren't important. Because if you're going to start toying with things that are more, quote-unquote, important or deeper or richer, and therefore anti-structural, because the structure is the shallow, most obvious thing that we can set up for a society uh, or as a society, then you can't dip your toe in and, I don't know, and, and expect to remain the same. Yeah. And But we want to dip our toe in and we want to get better. We want to be enriched in some way. 
And so the wish, that's where the wish fulfillment comes in. It's like, well, we assume it should work that way because that's what feels good. And that's what we'd like it to be. But maybe it just doesn't. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe it just tears your life apart and shits down your throat. Um, well, see, it's the shits down your throat part that I don't buy, I guess. Yeah. Like, even if that's how it feels, it's tears your life apart because you decided to step into a vortex that tears mm-hmm. lives apart. Yeah. But that's not shitting down your throat. That's you stepping into a vortex. <laughs> <laughs> well. And reforming. It's not as though you just tear your life apart and then what? I mean, if you go through to the other side, mm-hmm. you know, not unlike the mushroom trip, if you get through that fear barrier, there's this whole other world of vision awaiting you. You know, I, I mean, I think it's at least metaphorically the same thing here. If you mm. hold your breath and step through the gas. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, but the problem is that so many people don't come out the other side and we – We've seen people do that in this. I mean, we've seen researchers go down that route, and we've seen just individual people go down that route that just don't ever seem to recover um, from that that paranoia that is associated with this in many circumstances. Because they don't know the rules. Like, I think this is where it gets into – we don't have rites of passage in this society in you know the western any western culture really that that are meaningful we don't have we're not in tune with blah 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 i mean all that stuff it's like i think if we were more i don't know balanced in some way that that this stuff wouldn't we would be dealing with this that if there is something that present let's just stick with the hero's journey cuz i don't know what else to call it let's just say that there's something called the hero's journey that is going to take you on you know, maybe in life, a certain number of people. And some people are going to make it and some aren't. If you lived in a culture that understood this and respected it and dealt with it, uh, mm-hmm. then all of them would, or at least they wouldn't walk away half crazy. Mm. But because we're completely unconscious that this exists, because, you know, as a scientific materialist reductionist culture, we've decided, well, that's all magical thinking and we've conquered it. <laughs> Then the ramification is, well, you know, you didn't. You can't you can't just drug your way out of it with, you know, prescription drugs and you can't just ignore it and you can't, you know, repress it. it it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's one other way to deal with it except directly dealing with it? Well, you create your own bogus game, as we've seen, you know, uh, for instance, Jacobs do, you know, mm-hmm. or, or any researcher that sort of decides to try to weave it into their own acceptable premise. Right. I mean, if this thing is alive unto its own, then I think we better start treating it that way. Hmm. I don't know. I think the problem is going to be that people have their preconceived notions going into this of what it is, or they're poisoned by by the public's uh, you know stereotypical thing and so how are they exactly supposed to get over that i mean it in order to get over that you've got to kind of get hold of yourself and say okay what what is this how is it affecting my life you know what am i doing differently i mean you would have to recognize that to start with um, yes that is problem number one yeah and Not how creating I mean, one game for another game right and how do you recognize that i mean because immediately if this presents itself in any semblance of the way it's presented to you or to me or to numerous other people you know what is the first guttural reaction is to you know number one be afraid number two to equate it to this uh 
you know, th- this scrim, you know, pulled across the eyes of, of every experience out there called ufologies. I mean, that's, that's what people are going to immediately ascribe to it. Or they're going to ascribe it to demonic forces or that sort of thing. Depending on the mindset, it could also be angels. It could also be a wonderful experience. So, so we just have everyone read George Hansen's book, right? I mean, doesn't that take care? I mean, you got to change the field so that the, the main thing isn't aliens anymore. The main thing is... What is actually – what is the the mechanism here that's happening? What's actually happening? You know, not why or whatever, but how is this actually happening? I mean, again, it, it, it's like to say – you're right. I mean, to say, well, it's what happens when structure dips its toe into anti-structure. It becomes anti-structure, and then it wants to hang on to its structure, and it feels like it's getting shit on. But no, actually, that's just the fucking natural happening. That's the mechanism that, that happens Right. But we're dealing with a field that the researchers primarily don't even see that or don't believe it or haven't read it, don't know anything about it. And so they're still stuck as, you know, structure, <laughs> dipping their toe in anti-structure and not even knowing it. They're not even conscious of it. So, right. I mean, is there something that we should be doing? Let's ask that. Should we be doing something to uh, wake up ufologists to this possibility? Well, I think they know it. I mean that's the thing. I, I think that I think that all this stuff is known. I don't think that this is some uh, you know unknown theory to these people. I, I I don't see that as being it. I mean I I put a blog post up. Uh, it's probably been a couple of weeks ago because there was a thread on Above Top Secret by a guy that was asking you know the question I see come up every so often on that board and and other boards. Um, you know, can you call in UFOs by intent and focus? And he said he'd been seeing this a lot, cropping up a lot lately, which is probably our fault, um, or at least partly our fault. <laughs> but uh, or Greer's fault. Well, yeah, or that. And um, well, I said focus of intent, not focus of financial gain. <laughs> um, but I went to write a long post to him, and I said, "Well, let me put it on the blog." So I put it on the blog, and and in there, it's like you know, this is this is kind of how I worded it: something about this structure and anti-structure and marginalization, all of these things figuring into this. This is kind of like ufology's one of ufology's dirty little secrets is that they know this stuff, and yet it's not something i mean like you know george's book didn't sell as much as say stanton friedman's last book or kevin randall's last book or so on and so forth it's it's a really abstract concept to get your head around uh it involves uh too much thinking for a lot of people and uh and so it it just doesn't catch up it's not catchy enough you know what i mean it's not uh uh it's not an attractive enough package to make it accessible to everyone for everyone to understand. So I think they do know it. I think that uh, in some form, some, some of these researchers are aware of anti-structure. They are aware of sort of a, a mechanism that seems to work, but doesn't always, but then that's to be expected too. So, I mean, there's, I, I think there's, is there a way to definitively engage this phenomenon? is the question that he asked. And I said, well, yeah, there is. Uh, Does it work all the time? No. But if you're consistent, and see, this is where you're talking about throwing one's life into anti-structure. If you do it long enough, it's just a matter of time. 
before you start to notice some very weird shit. And and I don't even think his thread lasted very long. I think it was only up there maybe two days. And you, I thought, well, this is this is typical of this is not the sort of thing people want to want to entertain because that's you know that makes it all a little too close. Number one and number two, it's not a sexy enough answer for him. Uh, they want something that they can bang a rock on, and um, you know they want. Uh, you know, a Tolerian I mean, I don't even know. I don't even know if it's they want to bang a rock on anymore. I mean, I, I started watching Battlestar Galactica, the new version or newer version. Uh huh. And you know, clearly, this is written by people who have rated the UFO literature. So, I mean, I think at this point, people just want something that reflects the science fiction that reflects the <laughs> disinformation that originally came from the UFO field. And there's your feedback loop, ladies and gentlemen. Uh huh. <laughs> Well, I, I hate to say it. I mean, I look at, at at a lot of these posts out there, and I see this. You know, you can see it right across the board as some kind of deep seated desire of this to be a a nuts and bolts extraterrestrial. Um, the, the the same canned thing that they've been trying to sell for years, and I don't know. I like to think it's the casual observer that is more into that kind of an answer than the people who really dig into this with any, you know, well, you're talking about ATS or message board people. I'm talking about message board. I'm talking about, well, those are the people I'm saying, you know, the people who like those sorts of answers that are sci-fi answers. Yeah. I mean, that's possibly what they're looking for, but, um, this, this guy who started this thread, I mean, I'm just like, you know, you better really understand what you're asking for in this because what you're asking for or what you want is not particularly easy to deal with. And and we had a listener, or I had a listener, I think it was, uh, on the solo podcast that, um, you know, I was talking about this very thing. And he said, I really like your show, but I have to, I have to tell you, I can't listen to it anymore because I've been kind of throwing into some assemblance of practice what you've been talking about. And I'm having weird stuff happen. And this is not subtle. It's in my face, and I'm awake, and it's there, and I, I can't – I just can't deal with this. And so – And we've heard this really, on our own message board as well from people. Yeah, and, and so I've got to back away from this. And I – you know, actually, when I wrote the partial explanation of my own stuff on ATS, I had people private message me and say, I can't read this anymore because I feel weird just reading it. You know, it just feels – I feel like something changes, like there's a change in the air, and – I don't know. I mean, is there a toxic element to it? Yes. Is there is there a way past that? I suppose there probably is. It, you know, is everybody equipped for that? No. Is it demonic? <laughs> um, you know, I hate to use the same old uh, the same old can answer as you know. Are they real? Well, that depends on what you mean by real. Are they demonic? Well, that depends on what you mean by demonic. Well, I would say toxic depends on what you mean by toxic because, again, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's difference. toxic. It's to- Again, I'm, I'm trying to get through this point here, which is that it's it's like toxic to your life as you know it. Mm-hmm. But that's – but you're assuming that your life as you know it is the thing that you should be <laughs> because that's what you know and that's what you are and all of that. But if it's no. not, then – and then you step into something that sort of points that out or exists – in some other you know realm uh, that you're that you can't sort of coexist as yourself in or or whatever, and it starts to strip that from you. 
Uh-huh. Um, then yes, if you identify with your own identity, <laughs> which which is like, no, who doesn't? Uh-huh. Then yeah, it's going to feel toxic. It's going to you know feel evil and and all of this. But I I just again I don't understand why people. I mean, we've had this thing with us throughout the ages, again, of a hero's journey or of, uh, you know, the trickster master who hides as a moron in the crowd and is secretly, you know, a master. And, and 99.9% of the people will realize that he's a moron except for the one person who, you know, really wants to learn, you know, and then, you know, that whole story. Right. Uh, I mean, these things exist. These aren't like... I'm just making these up off the top of my head here, right? So right. so why why are these things still a mystery to us? I mean, why do we just like brush that aside? I mean, the hero's journey is always a matter of dying and being resurrected. Whether that's literally in a, in a Jesusy case or or not, uh or even in the shamanic journey, right? Of being having the 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 vision or the feeling of being pulled apart, literally having your body ripped apart and and re uh, repackage, put back together again. I mean, mm-hmm. that's evil if you want to call it evil. Mm-hmm. But is it? Because at the end, uh, you're a more whole person, right? You're put back together the way you should have been in all along. I guess you could make the argument. And it's only well, I, after I you've also- gone, it's only <laughs> after you've gone through that that you realize that that's the truth of the matter. Up until then, uh, you feel like, why me? You feel like everyone's out to get you and this is evil and you're losing your life and your wife and your house and all of this stuff. And it's only after it's all gone and you're put back together that you realize that's what had to happen. I don't know. I mean, I can't reconcile with, with the way that it uh, – and I'm just – I'm speaking from my own experience. I mean, I can't reconcile the, with the way that it behaves. I can't reconcile with um, you know, the horror of it, uh, the need for that, although I, to a degree I sort of understand – what that's for, for some people. Uh, and at the same time, I say, if I had not disconnected myself from this uh, years ago, what what would my life be like now? I don't think I'd be married anymore. And I don't think that uh, I would, I don't think I'd be where I'm at right now. And I don't necessarily believe that that would be a good thing. I don't, I don't know that I'd, and I mean, for me, I mean, I can, we can talk enlightenment from here to whatever, but I think I may have I may have gained some knowledge or insight into something. Uh, how relevant that would be to anyone else but myself, and really that's all that matters, right? When it comes right down to it, is if you get some answers for if you get your own sense of uh, resolution out of it, if that's possible, uh, is fine. But uh, I think there's something to said to be said for being. Uh, happy and, and content and somewhat at peace, uh, even in your own mind. And I don't know that really surrendering wholly into this would have been the right thing to do. I mean, one could look at Whitley and, and on, on episode one and go, wow. <laughs> I mean, here's a guy who has, you know, at least for my money, seems to have interacted with this stuff beyond anything that I'm that I could probably conceive of. I mean, has interacted with it on such a level that he's meditating with one night after night after night. Um, has it living in his woods, in the house, you know, leaving candy for it on a, <laughs> on a shelf. I mean, what? And he seemed pretty, 
he seemed pretty despondent over the whole thing. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, said something like, I wish I'd never said anything at all. Now, is that all a product of being public about it, or is that from the experience itself? Um, I would guess it might be somewhat of both. It's a prickly pear for me because when I turned away from it, I think I was about as low as I could possibly get, and it didn't seem to be subsiding. And it wasn't until years later that I got some uh, some resolution of that period in my life where it was just so out of control that uh, to to fall back into structure was difficult. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's kind of like my life was get up, eat something, and then go do whatever. There was no job. I was doing art to make a living and just whatever happened to hit my fancy that day is what I would do. And then I turn around and sell it, which, you know, I'm lucky to be able to do because God knows I wouldn't have had a place to live or food to eat. But I mean, structurally, there was no structure whatsoever. And I was predominantly engaging this stuff every night. I mean, walking around the house, literally saying, I know that you're here and I know you can hear me and, uh, you know, and, and that sort of thing. And having, some very weird shit, you know, visibly seen, not just by me, but by other people. Um, that will set your whole life to in, in you know, in a, in a spiral to where that interaction and that, that obsession with the, what is it? Because that is what it comes down to for a lot of people is what is it? What is the genesis of this? You know, if someone would have presented George Hansen to me back then, I don't know that I would have been able to get my, my head around it very well. But now that I'm out of that situation, now I can look back on it and go, okay, yeah, I see what exactly what George is talking about. And I, by far, was not the worst case. I saw people de-evolve into madness from this. I mean, you know, I do at times think it's toxic, and I think that's what I mean by toxic. I think gaining control of yourself and then being able to parse what's just happened I mean, if there's such a thing as dipping your pinky in the pool, I, I did a cannonball. And, <laughs> and then you have to realize I did the cannonball, and that's why it happened. Uh, so I get that part. But, yeah, and, but, I'm, and I'm not saying uh, what I'm saying is concrete. What I'm just trying to say is I always see this brought up. Well, is it aliens or is it demonic or mm-hmm. it has a control of your life in some way and all this? And it's like, well – and maybe that's true. Any of these things can be true. I'm just saying there are other options, and it's let's not lose sight of the fact that there are other analogies that we have in life that we could maybe compare this to that would make sense of it mm-hmm. uh, at least equally well. But, I, I mean, I would ask you, uh, how do you put together your thinking it's toxic with um, whatever you think it is? It's going to reflect back to you. I mean, so it's less toxic now, and yeah. you suspect that – it's not demonic or there's something less toxic about it. I mean, is that a coincidence? If you just one day woke up and were like, this is pretty good, <laughs> would it be pretty good? I mean, is, is that the relationship, do you think? I think that it's it's one of those things where if you take your initial experience or whatever that may be or whatever uh, – well, I mean, I look at Lisa and I going up to that spot, having that experience together, which is kind of the thing that shook me out of – uh, of saying that the whole experience of thing is bullshit, which is largely the response that I took when I first started hearing about this sort of thing. That the whole and what thing is bullshit? The whole experiencer thing. Oh. 
you know, I kind of took that stance. Like, you I, bullshit? I, I did. Huh. I did. Um, because at that point in my life, that that early on, I had not equated any of my own weird stuff to to this at all. When you've had weird stuff, especially for me, that have that are without question the most potent memories of my childhood uh, that I have. I mean, those instances that I've described on this show and other shows, those are my most pertinent forefront memories of being a kid and um they i mean they would rank right up there with monumental life experiences and so i never equated those to this i never never crossed my mind that that's what this phenomena could be about or that it's something like this that's interactive uh with me and i remember that when lisa and i came home that night and and just were kind of like immediately both just kind of fell apart at the same time uh i didn't i didn't even know what we were crying about but now when i look back at it i said well you know i was largely crying because now i know that this is what all of that stuff throughout my whole life was i mean i think i realized that then that that's what it was and it, it wasn't those it wasn't the kind of thing where i could go yeah i had this really weird thing happening to me when i was a kid and you could talk about it i never talked about it with that many people uh, and when I did, I felt very weird about doing it. And you'd have to have a, a certain type of crowd that you could tell that story to. But now you realize, oh, wait a minute. This isn't some far-flung memory that, while it's potent, may have been misinterpreted by the, the mind of a five- to nine-year-old. Um, now somebody else has experienced something this bizarre with me. And so now I can't, I can't put this aside and I can't kind of regulate this into, huh, that was weird. Then it becomes all too real, and so I think that's the point where, yeah, you know, kind of split your world open, and and that's not that's not easy, all by itself. That that part right there is difficult, but I think from that point is when fear grabs a hold because you don't know what it is. All you know is that it essentially can interact in your life and remove you from. What you're comfortable with, your your notion that you have a toehold on your own reality, and you can go and do what you you're a free being, you know that sort of thing. And this is probably where the whole connotation comes with being tagged like animals, and you know that sort of thing, or at least that analogy that they make of being tagged or being you know uh, darted. The idea that something can do that at its at its whim is kind of that'll make you a little bit scared, and of course it the the way it presents is is in a fearful way uh or or at least it has been for me and, and i'm sure sure a lot of other people but well do you think i mean the, the big question about that is do you think that that's on purpose do you think it is looking to terrorize you and or torture you well i, I think it, again i think it depends on the person i think it's uh uh I think when you get right down to it, if you approach this from the get-go with a sense of wonder and and, and some kind of innocence, then I think it's different. I think I creeped myself out that night long before anything had happened anyway. I think that hearing things uh, on TV, I mean, I was just as culturally contaminated as anyone else. I mean, don't make any mistake about that, but I was I was basically contaminated with being afraid. Like th- these things can 
you know, if you if we see anything, they can get you. <laughs> you know, I mean, that was in the air uh, for me. So I can't reconcile that everyone would be terrified to death at seeing something like this. I'm sure some people would be uh, in all of it or would approach it innocently. Uh, I know I didn't. Does it mean to do it? I think it means to do it. If that's the only way that it can reach um, you on some particular level, and what level that is, I don't know. But um, well, let me throw an idea. That's out there. that's what it seems like. You know, like let me throw like, an idea out there for you. I, yeah. I talked about this a little bit on the Black Fridays just mm-hmm. last week uh, in the whatever the private chat is post facto, and uh, it is this. I saw um, a Joseph Campbell lecture where he was talking about the five sheaths. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the Egyptian, ancient Egyptian and Hindu concept of what comprises a human. And the first sheath is food, which is your body. <laughs> your body right. is comprised of food. Second sheath is breath. Third sheath is the mental. The fourth sheath is wisdom. And the fifth sheath is the bliss or rapture from which we are all born, essentially. Uh, so, if we are creatures that essentially work on the mental level and we come into contact with creatures that work on the or exist on the wisdom level, let's say, then do they have to break down the mental so that we can meet them at that other level? And I just got to thinking about this because I actually thought of you. I thought, and me, in a different way, but in terms of that sense of knowing these beings even though you don't know them. And this comes up a lot in the literature, right? There's that sense of recognition. You know them. uh, You're close to them. They're family in some way. But consciously, mentally, you don't understand what the hell that is. And I didn't feel that when I was lying in bed and they were, you know, staring at me and sort of saying, hey, come with us. You know, not literally saying it, but just that was the feeling, that sort of Uh naive, like, hey, come with us. And then, you know, hearing the woman's, you know, I'm saying, why why am I remembering this? And she says, because you've always wanted to know what an abduction was, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, because you've always wanted to. I mean, that's familiarity, right? But I have no familiarity with these beings as far as I can mentally recognize. Uh-huh. And yet there it is. There is. So on some level, past the fear, there must be some deeper recognition. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is that what it is? is? Is that what it is? So Joseph Campbell brought up that. That, you know, we live in sorrow, right? This is sort of the the Buddhist perspective and even the Mm -hmm. Christian perspective, that you live in sorrow. And that's because the mental is concerned with the body. Uh, It's concerned with um, the environment and staying alive, you know, eating and preserving itself and all of that. Um, And then all of that sort of physical dynamics get – and I'm throwing this – this is my own vanism (laughs) – sort of get – interpreted as the self it's like we look outwards and then we create this this internal structure of you know the self the mental structure based on the external based on the sort of patterns that we see and the fears that we have um we internalize them and and treat other people that way and and all of this um so if that thing that mental creature is blocking out the wisdom level or whatever that that is whatever word you want to use there um then it does have to go, right? But the unfortunate thing is, if that goes, then everything with it goes. All of the structure, which is the marriage, <laughs> the job, uh-huh. the house, the, you know, whatever, right. all of that stuff, whatever it is, the good stuff. Well, you become the hermit, you know, that, that's... 
Maybe. I mean, but that's a fear. You become the hermit. I don't know that you do. I just know that you have to throw it away, at least initially. Mm-hmm. Um, but say you don't. Well, then there are these, you know, if if these beings, if this is all true, these beings are working on that level, then do you think that sort of answers it? Do you think that's why there's that recognition? Do you think uh, that's why there's that fear? Because it's this deeper level interacting with this shallow level um, that it has to get over itself in order to be the deeper level. I'll tell you how I would explain it because this is, this is the feeling that I get from, I, I identify, I identify with what you're saying. Uh, and, and in no small part, I think you're, you're right to, a, to a degree. I, 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 I'm ha- I have a hard time doing the overlay onto my own stuff. Um, but I look at this and I, this is the feeling that I get if I can verbalize this at all. Somehow we know what this is, but not, (laughs) wow, this is going to be hard. We know what this is in, um, wow, this is fucking harder than I thought. I mean, for me, this is probably this probably is the the smaller you know more contained version of what you're saying it's like this is so far um uh, outside of our our little bubble but we know that it's like somehow and i don't know where this comes from for me at least i mean my feeling is is like I, yeah i know there's a bigger reality to all of this this thing kind of cracks that and go no it's even bigger than that and i think that somehow or another we came from that uh that's why these things seem familiar because we existed outside of whatever this is right now but because we're contained in what we are and we're kind of living the dream right now you know it's like being shaken awake in the midst of a nightmare it's that sort of feeling to me it's like these things whatever they are uh are they uh, as people said, more real than real. They're so far outside of this. But they, I mean, again, I, I hate to keep bringing up this whole thing, but I, I can't get away from it. And Whitley even talked about this, like the notion of these beings somehow being connected with death or what happens afterwards, or, you know, which God forbids if Ned, Nick Redfern's book is right, you know, but there's something there to me that says, these beings have something to do with that, and internally we know that. And is is there a fear of, like you've talked about, the death of the ego and the death of this reality and the death of your paradigm? Your cozy little world is no longer this cozy little world anymore, that kind of thing. Is it that we know it's associated with that, and therefore the first thing that comes out of our mouth is the F word, fear, and you know, we're, we're off to the rate. Now we're in for the horror story. Sit down, grab your popcorn. It's time for a good slasher flick. So is that where all that comes from? If you're more attuned, if you're more innocent about it, if you approach it in a different way, is it different? I think Do innocent you, about you know, it is a good way to put it. Is, is, is it? I mean, I, I don't think attuned has anything to do with it. Yeah. Maybe it is innocent then. I mean, I don't know, just approaching it in a surrendering, you know, it's the same thing you've talked about for a while as far as, you know, meditative practice, just give in, just give up and give in that sort of thing. And maybe it does say, 
boo. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Remember that that maybe that scene actually does happen. You know, well, boo, here's the, here's boo. my question for you. I mean, you feel like okay when you're with uh, dude in shroud. Uh-huh. Uh, you feel like, do you not, that all of this stuff that we're talking about is superfluous? Like all of this <laughs> is hypothetical, but when confronted with it, there is that recognition. There is that paying attention to what it's saying, not questioning it, all of that. It's natural. Put it that way. It feels natural when you're there. And uh-huh. it's only as an afterthought uh, that it feels unnatural. It's It's as if in talking about it. And in thinking about it afterwards, we make it this unnatural thing. Hmm. I mean, I felt that when the, with the energy, right? When, when that first started happening in me and I started moving around, it's like the only thought process, the only thought thing, that I, idea that I have to compare it to is possession or channeling or something right. scary. Hmm. Um, but when it's actually going on, it's completely natural and it feels completely good and it feels like not even feels like you know when it's happening you know mm-hmm. that this is just fine and this is what is in everyone and we should all be doing this like you, <laughs> you know you know that it's only in having to describe it to people and having to try to pretend to be balanced in your opinion of what it could be um so that you don't appear crazy it's only it's only in those <laughs> moments of social interaction and right. private interaction that uh that it seems unnatural i mean do you find that that's sort of similar to your experience with this phenomena? Uh, well, I'll put it this way. The, the me that's sitting here doing this show and talking to you and our listeners and all of that is not the same person that sits in front of that guy. That makes sense. Uh, there's no mask <laughs> that you could wear in front of this guy that couldn't be seen through that that would be it would be what would be the point is really the point does that make you a kid does that make you innocent yeah yeah and especially vulnerable at at certain points which is why every once in a while uh i mean usually i'm i'm pretty calm around that but there you know i have to say there there are points and it's it's hard to describe. It's um, if you're sitting on the floor and you're looking at at this man, uh, you're paying very close attention. But there is and have been points where my mind has kind of wandered a little bit to the here, to the to the this. <laughs> Excuse me, and I kind of look down at the carpet, and then I'll kind of like just go to I see the edge of his leg, and I'll go. This guy's really sitting here. <laughs> and then there slights then there starts to be this just ever so slightly creepy feeling. Like a genuinely creepy feeling. I don't know if the altered state of that is just the perception of seeing it does something or that like I've said before, that something with these beings that they bring some kind of portion of their own reality here, and that's the high strangeness that we see and experience is that that uh, oil and water mix type of thing. Well, let me tell you something. When mm-hmm. I let the meditation energy go, as I uh-huh. did today, mm-hmm. and this is something I haven't said, which is going to sound shocking because I guess I should have, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is that every time I do it, every single time, at some point, it becomes scary, and it doesn't matter what time of day it is. Mm-hmm. 
um, at some point, for some reason, I start to think um, that the shadows are going to come alive or that the sounds <laughs> I'm hearing aren't yeah. from other tenants in the building or something, you know, something uh-huh. happens where I'm, and it never, you know, nothing ever jumps out and says boo, but at some point, inevitably, I get scared that that's going to happen and I feel like I should stop, but I don't. And mm-hmm. still nothing says boo. So right. I don't know. There's just, I don't know if that's getting into another state of mind or if it's just that in the midst of this, when your, your own brain, you, you know, starts processing what's going on when you come out of the moment, uh, sort of the spell of the moment and start thinking that that becomes the problem. That then is the issue because well, that's it. Yeah. The minute that you start to think about it, you know, like if you just kind of, I know with this thing, I, if I just go with it and I listen and pay attention, I'm okay. But the minute that I start to process it as, man, this is really happening. This is really, it's really there. And what did he just say? Then I just start, then it's something just starts to creep in that feels creepy and scary um, and something to be feared. And then you feel a, I don't know, the visual for me is kind of like a, a sarcophagus, you know, with this ancient person in it. It's like you get that feeling of this ancient, dusty, wizened Wizened? Is that a, that's a word, right? Sure. <laughs> this wizened yeah. being, and that in itself is also kind of creepy. And I I can't really reconcile why that is. It's just I'm just being honest about how it, it how I feel about it. It is when you start to think about it that that is absolutely true. Um, as long as you pay attention, it doesn't seem that you seem to zone into what's being said. But on the face of it. You know, if if uh, Nick Redfern's folks were to see that, they go, "Oh yeah, that that's a demon." <laughs> you know, there's just no doubt of that. So, I mean, I don't know. Don't judge a book by its cover, I guess, in that sense. But but you would ask me, how do I reconcile toxicity with the the notion of um, reflecting back at yourself and all that kind? Of, I think. The way I reconcile that is to try to um, try to get it through my skull. Ever since the days of Lee and I trompsing about the countryside, uh, what he used to say, which is, "You're here, nothing hurt you. You're still alive, and you're not going anywhere. So obviously, it's nothing that horrible to be afraid of. It's scary, but how scary is it? Can you get over it? Yes, I can, but there are still steps I don't take, and so." In not taking those steps, it's kind of like, you know, how you always say, well, I always say, well, why'd you stop? And you say, well, I just, I stopped, you know, cause, cause I felt I had to tell people about it. And that was like the choice I had was to either, you know, go into this enlightened state of mind or to, or to, to come and talk more about it. Uh, I don't get that sense with me at all. What I get the sense is, is that right now I'm holding it off by not, uh, confronting it. <laughs> Like head on, like walking out into that field, at, you know, where I took you that night, not walking out there by myself and plopping my behind down in that grass and just sitting there and waiting. You know, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm moving at my own pace now. I don't, I don't, I don't relinquish and I don't go headlong into the, I don't cannonball into the pool anymore. Um, I think you're supposed to swim in it. Well, <laughs> 
I think Lee put it the best way possible. He got sick and tired of being afraid, you know, and everybody's got a different threshold for when they're sick to death of that. And I became pretty sick to death of that. And that's for me is when there seemed to be a shift in something. Now, whether or not it's the same thing or not, I don't know. I think it is. It says it is. So could this be what Dorothy Isop was talking about when she said in her first experiences, she experienced men coming into her room and telling her things and being very calm. And it was a very, you know, benign experience. And yet when someone told her, well, you know what you're experiencing is demons and of the devil. And then it became this fearful thing of things scurrying into corners and all sorts of weird shit like that is, you know, is that not to me uh, exactly what I've seen in my own life over the course of years? I just didn't recognize it. Like she put it so eloquently that way in describing her own experience that that's what I walk away from it saying is this must be true because I've seen this, this woman, you know, is saying this and it's like, God, yes, that's it. It's reflecting, you know, what we expect. It is what we expect. So, can we make it what we want it to be? Can we experience it as we want to? And I don't know. I mean, I, I think it can. I think it's its own thing. But I think you can definitely have an an effect upon how it presents. I don't know. Some would say that's a wild ass theory, but it seems to hold sway for me at least. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap it up. You well, know, not now, close, now that our now, yeah. now that our episodes <laughs> are like all two and a half hours long. Does that count as a bonus midweek show? (laughs) (laughs) I believe it does. All right. So I don't want to hear any bitching about us not having a bonus midweek show. Not that I've (laughs) been as bitched recently, but. No. Um, All right. Let's, let's call it a wrap. Shall we? Old, old bean. I think we should go into this topic again. Maybe sans guest at some point, because uh, I think that for a lot of people out there, and I used to get a lot of letters to this effect of people wanting this to stop, like wanting the experience to stop for themselves. Like they could not stop it. And I think a lot of those people would have, uh, would have fallen into, uh, it's demonic. It's this, it's that, um, rather than take a step backwards and see a bigger picture of that. I think, I really think we should especially examine what I was talking about when, uh, with Nick, which was, um, you know the document saying that uh, the way to avoid invasion was to simply deny this, and he found some sort of—I uh, don't remember because it's been about a week ago—but he he found that uh, interesting uh, in that aspect. So I mean, I think there's there's a lot of ground to cover in that, uh, and at some point, I'd like to just me and you sit down and do a show about how it presents what, like, give an give an example, like what happened during a day. And how was your mindset before you saw something? And how did it present at that time versus another time in a different set of circumstances? Does that make any sense to do a show like that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think that could be kind of interesting. So maybe that's the New Year's Eve show. We'll find out. <laughs> Happy New Year. Da, na, na, na. All right. So next week... <laughs> maybe we'll do it next week. But for now... Thanks for listening, and good night. Good evening. Or good day. Or good morning. That's right. It's a podcast. This thing ain't live. That's right. Goodbye. Bye.